We'll hear from uh, John Shipley coming up a little bit later in hour number two. Also hear from Jeb Blazevitz, former Georgia tight end. Had some big games against Auburn. I think twice had three receptions uh, in a game against uh, Auburn uh, for the Dogs. He'll join us. Also, uh, Rich Stiles, host of the Back Nine Boys Golf Show, will join us. We'll talk a little golf with him. Get the latest with Urban Meyer. There's been a lot of uh, social media back and forth on uh, on Urban Meyer today. We'll get the latest on that as well. But, uh, BJ, good to have you back here with us. Obviously, last weekend, amazing weekend in college football. The two games of the week in the SEC really weren't uh, pretty much dominating blowouts in both of those games. But still, nonetheless, some surprising results kind of in the middle of the pack in the SEC, ACC, and others. Yeah, as you mentioned, though, I think the uh, headliners for the weekend – Georgia and Alabama, Alabama and Georgia clearly won two uh, in college football, and both those programs flex, flex their muscle yet again. Uh, Arkansas came into Athens, right, with one of the best resumes in college football. You played you played Texas. You beat them by 19. You played Texas A&M. You won that game. You doubled up the Aggies. You won that game by 10. And in games against their two nationally ranked uh, teams they defeated, Texas and Texas A&M, they never trailed. Arkansas never trailed against Texas, never trailed against Texas A&M. And I know Georgia's a different type team than those two teams, but for Georgia to shut out Arkansas the way they did, Traylon Burks had just three catches for 10 yards, no no production offensively. Uh, without JT Daniels, Stetson Bennett was able to manage the offense. Georgia ran the football very well, dominated at the line of scrimmage really neutralized those Arkansas linebackers and Jalen Catalan in the front three that Arkansas was in for a good portion of that game. Just very impressed with Georgia, very impressed with their ability to run the football with a couple of different backs. Georgia's defense is elite. I mean, we are, we said this a couple of weeks ago, right, guys? We were kind of asking the question, are we looking at a generational defense? Well, I think now we are no longer asking the question. We are saying it. This is a generational defense, one of the best defenses I've ever seen in college football. I know Christian has a good breakdown up on it uh, on ESPNCoastal.com comparing some of the great defenses of the last generation and what we have right now with Georgia. And Georgia's numbers are overwhelming. And just Georgia as a whole, overwhelming. Uh, Georgia has won their last two games by a combined score of 99-0. to I mean, think about that. And, and I know Vanderbilt is Vanderbilt, but you do have to give Vanderbilt credit. They have two wins. Vanderbilt has two wins, and you beat Arkansas and Vanderbilt by a combined score of 99-0. to Just just remarkable what George has done, and to continue to bring it every week is very impressive. And Ben, quite frankly to me, they look like a championship team. And uh, so does Alabama. I know Ole Miss got some production late in that game to make it look a little closer, but Alabama absolutely dominated Ole Miss. They did so physically as well, running the football. I think Brian Robinson Jr. had 36 carries, had almost 200 rushing yards, four rushing touchdowns. So kind of an old school game from Alabama where Bryce Young was still making plays, but just running the football, setting the tone with their offensive line, with the downhill running attack, and then defensively for the vast majority of the game, controlling Matt Corral, not giving up big plays, Jerry on Ely. So the story of college football, when you talk about championship contenders, the stories, I should say, Alabama and Georgia, and Ben, to me, we, you know, certainly we can get to Kentucky's win over Florida and uh, Auburn, obviously, uh, down in LSU. Georgia Southern had a big-time performance. Uh, but I think that when you start talking about contenders in college football, you mention Alabama, you mention Georgia, and then in terms of that top tier, you're waiting a while before you mention anybody else. 
Yeah, BJ, I mean, I think you said the best when you talk about Alabama and Georgia just going right along. I mean, Georgia has the best defense in college football. Alabama has the best team, I think, in college football. When you look at how well they play top to bottom, both both just go about their business. As you mentioned, BJ, 99 you know, you know, ninety-nine to zero in the last in the last two weeks. I mean, that's 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 crazy. We talking about a Georgia defense that's you know uh, always uh, etching their uh, etching their names in, into the into the record books of how how good they're gonna end up. You know, and obviously you still got a long way to season to go, but from what they've done thus far, that's incredible. I mean, what what Kentucky did against Florida, I'm not taking anything away from the Wildcats coach Stoops right now. Is my front runner for SEC coach of the year, but what he's doing with Will Levis, what he's doing with Rodriguez, and that they found a way to win ugly. Like, okay, somebody said, can Kentucky win if the if the running game is not really there, if the passing game is not really there? Yep. Could you talk about penalties for Florida? Nope. Not as many penalties for Kentucky. You talk about a blocked field goal for Kentucky. You talk about <clears throat> a defense for uh, Florida that only gave up 13 points, but an offense for Florida that just couldn't get its footing going. I think I think that the most impressive, uh, outside of Kentucky, the most impressive team of the weekend was Auburn. Auburn, Auburn found a way to win in, in uh, you know, uh, in Death Valley. Haven't done that since 1999. Georgia Southern. Finding a way to uh to you know go through a tough week and get a big win against the Arkansas State team, regardless of who it was, they was able to put up a lot of points. So this is why we love college football because well, you, it's very very predictable when you talk about the number one and number two team in the country, and after that, it gets very very sketchy because it was. And as Kevin mentioned, ACC, what is the ACC now? We don't know. When Pitt right now is putting up you know sixty or uh, fifty well fifty burgers, Wake Forest is the only undefeated team. And you just don't know week in and week out who is the third best team in the SEC. We don't know. Cincinnati handled uh, Notre Dame. Pac-12 might be it might be over and done, and Spencer Rattler might be on the bench for Oklahoma. So you just you just don't know. But Kevin, that's why you love college football because outside of what goes on to Athens and Tuscaloosa, you got to watch the whole yep. game because you never know how the end is going. Yeah, it certainly changes week to week uh, in college football. As you said, the the storylines there uh, around college football. And uh, Ben and I talked about this yesterday. Uh, BJ, want to get your thoughts? There is might the storyline we talked about most in the offseason. Who's going to contend with Alabama and Georgia? Who's going to contend with Alabama in the West? Oh, it's Texas A&M. Listen to Jimbo Fisher. Oh, uh, we're, we want Alabama. We want all that smoke. We want, to, we want to face the Crimson Tide. Might they be the team to give Alabama the best run in the West in the regular season? Is this the year that Jimbo Fisher at least puts them more in the conversation for the college football playoffs? And now they are staring firmly down the barrel of a three-game losing streak after they get done getting run roughshod by Alabama this weekend. That will definitely be three in a row and Texas A&M oh how they have fallen from grace here relatively quickly yeah I mean you look at the teams in the SEC right after Alabama and Georgia and I think it's a very fair question who's next because Ole Miss had their chance against Alabama and granted I'm not going to fault anybody for losing even losing convincingly to Alabama or Georgia because I think those are the two standards right now in college football but Ole Miss lost convincingly to Alabama. Then you get into Arkansas. They have two big wins. Well, got shut out by Georgia. You look at LSU. I mean, LSU seemingly is always in a tight game. They lost at home to Auburn, Ben, like you mentioned, for the first time since 99. I mean, Mississippi State can be great one day, can be just bad the next day. Uh, they're they're, they're kind of hot and cold. I think you look at uh, Auburn. Auburn has a really impressive win at LSU, but they also lost to Penn State and probably should have lost to Georgia State in game at, at, in a game where they got a fortunate call late, A&M's in real trouble because uh, you think about a couple of losses already and you look at the remainder of that schedule with the SEC West, that is no joke. I mean, I think wouldn't surprise me if they're with, sitting there, Kevin, like you kind of inferred, 
five, six losses at the end of the year. Well, they're going to lose Texas this A&M. weekend, right? I mean, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not beating Alabama. They're not beating Alabama. I'm sorry. Alabama, just, just the way they're playing right now. Uh, you look in the East, and I do think that Kentucky has Georgia's attention, right? And we know that Kentucky's been a good program. Uh, Kentucky has really elevated the profile of a football program under Mark Stoops, some big wins, 10 wins not that long ago, players that have gone high in the NFL draft. But to but to beat Florida in conjunction with their start, right, uh, I think with their second win in, in SEC play, they became 2-0 and in conference play for just the second time since 1977. So we had not seen that a ton. Then you add to that a win over Florida. I believe that was the first win in Lexington over Florida since 1986. So you're talking about once-in-a-lifetime type stuff uh, or, or, or twice-in-a-lifetime potentially type stuff that we're seeing out of or, or in a generation, I, sh- I should say, type stuff out of Kentucky. And I like the way this team is constructed, Ben. You know, Chris Rodriguez is probably one of the two or three best running backs in the country. And how about Kentucky's defense? When you look at that late goal line stand against Florida, they had to stop Florida seven times from inside the 11-yard line because there was a penalty on a third down that gave Florida a new set of downs. So they stopped Florida seven times from deep inside the red zone. And uh, Jacquez Jones, the old Miss transfer, had the pass deflection. So Kentucky can run the football. They can play really good defense. Will Levis can stretch the field. He did not do that on Saturday. But in some ways, I find that affirming. And, and I've said this before, guys. I know a lot of people will look at wins and go, yeah, they won, but they won ugly, like you said, Ben. And to me, that's even more impressive when you win and win ugly. Because good teams find a way to win when some parts of their game, offense, defense, whatever, isn't at its best. And Kentucky had 77 passing yards. Kentucky had 77 passing yards and beat Florida. And to me, that shows that this team can win when all things aren't going well, you know, can win when they have to rely on one side of the ball. So I think if you're Georgia, you're well aware of Kentucky. But in terms, Kevin, of, you know, the the, the initial question, Ben, and I know y'all talked about it yesterday, who's the third best team in the SEC? Uh, It seemed like we've kind of changed picks each week with that one. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it yesterday, as Kevin mentioned, BJ. It's it's a head-scratcher. And – I mean, if I mean, think about this. Everybody talking about what's not going on in the ACC right now because the usual suspect or the usual suspect in Clemson just hasn't been themselves this year. You take away Alabama uh, and Georgia from the East and the West. I mean, the SEC is not much different right now than what's going on in the ACC. So yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a race to the finish as far as like who wants to be uh, you know that third best team in the SEC because right now if Florida was five and zero right now, people would say, oh man, Florida beat Alabama. It's gonna be a crash course in Jacksonville. Give them Wildcats a lot of credit. I mean, we don't we taking away from them because of how they almost this almost that. No, they got the dub on Saturday and they got it in an ugly way. When you can win ugly against a team that you haven't had much success with in the last what forty years, I think I think that's something that you know to ride home about. But once again, them Georgia boys, yeah, it's one thing to talk about what you can do, but when you got to stand out there in front of them for four quarters, it's a total different ball game. Again, a lot to look forward to this week in college football, and we'll certainly be talking about that as we move forward. We'll come back. So much to get to uh, here. We'll look at, as BJ said, is there anybody right now on the level with Alabama and Georgia in college football? We'll break that down, but certainly it's been a wild couple of days for Urban Meyer and his tenure potentially in jeopardy with the Jacksonville Jaguars. We'll get to that when we come back here on 3 and Out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. 
us here on the show. We'll get to some college football talk in just a little bit, but certainly around NFL circles, Urban Meyer been the talk of the league, and not in a good way uh, for the last couple of days. Shad Khan having to put out a statement saying, look, I talked to Urban. I'm going to keep that between us, but he's got to earn back the uh, the trust of uh, everybody in the organization. I believe uh, he will do that, but uh, there were some ex- expecting maybe he could be let go. Uh, some maybe thinking they would he would be forced to resign, uh, but certainly just the latest in the, uh, the Urban Meyer saga there in Jacksonville, BJ and Ben. Yeah, not a good look, not a good look at all. And you think about, you know, the image, you think about the perception uh, this is something that you knew that some sort of a response was coming from the Jacksonville Jaguars from from Shad Khan. Uh, I think that you know we all thought, kind of watching the news earlier, that, that there was a chance you know maybe he could be fired. There was a uh, a possibility that that was on the horizon. But you know for Urban Meyer to come back and and earn the trust, how does he do that? Because you think about this situation with the video, uh, which is clearly not back this Doyle situation. Uh, which was also not good. I mean, it has been a series of of things for Urban Meyer here, and uh, the video circulating. I think the you know the feedback, the negative feedback, has been warranted. Uh, you're in a position where there were some reports on Twitter. You know, what does this do to the locker room? How do guys view your messaging uh, now when you come out and talk to the team? But this is not a good situation. And yes, uh, Shad Khan saying uh, this will require a personal commitment from Urban to everyone who supports, represents, or plays for our team. I am confident he will deliver, uh, and I guess we will see moving forward. BJ, wasn't, wasn't we kind of expecting something, though? And I'm not saying I'm not saying of this magnitude, right? But, I mean, what what, what the old adage of? I mean, I can, I can, I can kind of give you, uh, you know, future behavior, you know, on, on previous behavior, you know, something, something of, you know, uh, of that magnitude. When you think about Urban Meyer, Everywhere he's went, he's been successful, but everywhere he's went has come with, you know, some level of controversy. Now, I don't know what happened to Utah, but Florida, Ohio State, it's been controversy. Now, <clears throat> they usually say as long as your production supersedes your bad behavior, they will tolerate you. Well, what production has he given you? He's on a team that won one game. Haven't they lost 20 games in a row at this point? There is nothing – everybody thought that he was going to start his tenure with a win because you was playing against a Deshaun – you know, uh, I mean, uh, Deshaun Watson wasn't even going to be playing against the Texans, and you still, got, you still lost. This is a team right now trying to figure out who they are with the average age is 25 years old. This is a team that has a young guy in Trevor Lawrence who is trying to figure out his way. And you got a head coach who had a game on Thursday night. He went to Cincinnati – he has a bar in Cincinnati. He, is, he was there for an event, but he also did other things. Now, BJ, you talked about standards and holding these coaches to a standard. Urban Meyer has done nothing in the NFL. It doesn't take away who he was, but he's done nothing in the NFL. The problem with Urban Meyer is he's always been in a situation where he makes a mistake and people come out and they apologize for him. They sympathize with him. Oh, oh we have no – what about Urban Meyer's behavior will make you think he's going to live up to the standard? You are dealing with grown men now, grown men who have livelihoods, who have wives and kids and, and families and responsibilities. So I, as a player, have to uphold the standard of the Jaguars and the head coach don't. I, as a player, got to answer questions about my head coach that I don't even really know about so – he has no credibility uh, in the locker room right now. He doesn't take accountability for anything that he does. 
And for a team that doesn't even have its first win, you got to go overseas here in a week to go, you know, uh, you know, and, and then to go play the Miami Dolphins. But to me, this is typical Urban Meyer. And as long as there is never consequence for what he does, what would make you think he's going to do anything different? This is just one of this, and this isn't his first bad decision. This is this might be his third if you if you include Tim Tebow. So I, I just think that if the rules for the players and the rules for the coaches aren't the same, what are we talking about here? A guy that, you know, has always done things and never got in trouble for it because he's won? Well, he doesn't have that luxury now. So now maybe it was some something that contract that they couldn't get out of because I definitely thought that Urban Meyer, it was going to be breaking news that he had been fired. Yeah, and I think you've got some reports that uh, doesn't have a lot of respect in the in the locker room. I'm trying to find the exact wordage. Um, and, and the gentleman from SI that put that out there, citing unnamed you know, players in that locker room, said, look, he, he doesn't have any credibility uh, in the locker room. And as you said, been no wins. Uh, the Jaguars haven't necessarily been close to wins. And how are you going to preach locker room behavior or outside locker room behavior when you yourself don't, have not shown to practice a lot of good locker, outside locker room behavior uh, at this point? It's, it's tough. It, it really, really is tough because – the hardest thing I had to understand is I was twenty, I was uh, twenty one years old when I first got drafted. But it's a grown man's league. It's a it's a it's a respectable it's a it's a professional league. And I said this: just because you get drafted or you be, you become a head coach, don't make you a professional. You a pro, yeah, I, yeah, I coach the pros. That don't make you a professional. There's nothing about Urban Meyer's behavior last weekend or whatever last Thursday night that make him because we're talking about things that have to, nothing to do with the game. He talks about I'm not going to be a distraction. Too late. You started off as a distraction. Your first hire was a distraction. Your biggest offseason pickup was a distraction. You haven't won any games, and now you're a distraction. So I, I don't I don't know with uh with what? You know, uh what uh, 13 more games to go in the season, and you looking at the fact that this is gonna be a team that's not gonna even contend in the AFC South that's very up and down. You're gonna probably your, your quarterback is probably gonna break Peyton Manning's record for most interceptions in the season. You got you just traded uh, C.J. Henderson to the Panthers. You, you know James Robinson might be your might be your best player that you don't even feature. And we're talking about you in a bar. So I, I I just think that when people ask why is it hard for certain franchises to never be good, it's stuff like this. We can't even be focused on being a franchise because we're talking about the head coach who stayed who stayed after when the team flew back home because he quote had something to do. So I, I, I don't know, BJ. I mean, this is this is always going to be a head scratcher. I'm always going to be harder on head coaches <clears throat> because they're the one preaching the standard. They're the one preaching it's all about the shield. Don't be a distraction. Don't make it about you. Well, what did they say to Urban? What did, what did, what did, what did Mr. Khan say to Urban? I bet you the conversation didn't go like that. So we'll see what happens moving forward. But you want to know why bad franchises stay bad franchises? Look at the head coach. Look at look at look at look at his personality and how it resonates throughout, or his reputation how it re- resonates throughout. But I've never heard of current player saying thing about the about the coach as anonymous sources. I've never heard that. I've never heard somebody say, "Hey man, don't put me on the record." But he but he he ain't it. He ain't got no credibility. So you already you in order in order to win back the locker room, you must first have had the locker room. I don't think he ever had it. I really I really really don't. Most people in life respect their bosses. Because they because they are the boss, not necessarily because of who they are. I think that's what's going on right now with Urban. They respect him because of who, because the position he holds, not who he is. And until he proves otherwise, this is going to be a long season for these Jags. 
Well, and, and you think about this situation and obviously, you know, the national response and you think about uh, the Chris Doyle situation as well. It's kind of a compilation uh, of, of, of multiple mistakes. And, and I think when you talk about having to earn the trust and respect of the team back, I mean, I think that's, think that's going to be a process because it's like you said, Ben, if you're in that locker room and you start hearing about things like, hey, accountability and we have to, you know, do this and that off the field and we have to make sure we're, you know, thinking about everybody. I think if you're in that locker room and you're on the team, you're looking around going, wait, what is, what? And, and I think that's, you know, that's natural. And I don't know how you move forward and just kind of make that better. I don't know how you uh, have the, total respect to the locker room given some of these mistakes and some of these issues so uh this is not a good look this is a bad situation this is a major mistake from urban meyer and i think when you couple this with the chris doyle hiring uh that was kind of inexplicable uh quite frankly when you go back to his first hire given the issues that that were there uh i i think there are a lot of people with way more questions than answers when you talk about urban meyer and again uh, the only thing that will heal any of those wounds is winning football games, as Ben well knows. How do you win the back the locker room? Well, you better win and show that you know what you're doing uh, in that regard to try to get guys back uh, in your good graces there in that locker room. We've got more to come here on 3 Now We're talking some college football. When we return, Bama and Georgia have separated. Who's even close? We'll break that down when we return. It's 3 and Out here on this Tuesday. Hit us up on Twitter. Love to hear from you. At Pigskin Radio. We're also uh, streaming live, ESPNCoastal.com, and on Facebook, Twitter. Good to have you here, three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. This past week in Alabama, Georgia, just the games were over before you settled into your seats with Ole Miss and Arkansas. But is there a clear separation between Alabama, Georgia, and everyone else? I.e., if they play in the SEC championship game, how much does that potentially matter? And will it just be everyone waiting for a potential rematch of Georgia and Alabama? Or are there contenders that are there? We just haven't quite seen them at their peak performance yet? Uh, I think there's a big separation. I feel I feel very confident saying that. And, I mean, I think the best way to sort of frame how far ahead Alabama and Georgia are compared to the rest of the pack is to just ask out loud, ask your friends, ask your coworkers, who's the third best team in the country? And I don't think you're going to get a consensus. I think some people will say Iowa. I think some will say Penn State. Some might say Cincinnati. You may get an Oklahoma. You may even get an Ohio State. Uh, but I don't think you're going to get most people saying, oh, this team is, because we haven't seen the dominance outside of Alabama and Georgia that we've seen with those two teams around the country. And I know you could point really, but to me, it only exemplifies just how dominant these teams have been. Like, you could look at Alabama and potentially say, oh, well, they were a two-point conversion away from being tied with Florida. Well, you can also say you played a top-10 team on the road and you won, and you were up 21-3. to I think, you know, with Georgia, you could say, well, theoretically, they were one score away from Clemson tying them. But I think you could also say Clemson was never anywhere close to ever scoring a touchdown. And I'm not sure if Clemson wins that game that the rest of their season doesn't go a little different. So I think Georgia – Alabama, Alabama, Georgia, in whatever way you rank them, what, one, two, two, one. And I think it's, I, I think it's a fair question. I think you can ask, should the Bulldogs be number one? I think that's, that's kind of a, a, a question you probably have to ask right now. Uh, but I think they are way ahead of everybody else. It doesn't mean I don't think Cincinnati or Penn State or Iowa are very good teams. But on the level of 
Alabama on the level of Georgia right now? No, and Ben, I don't even think it's close. It's not close, and that and and that's not that's not saying anything bad about the rest of college football. Uh, certain teams just are the standard right now. Kirby Smart understands what it takes to be a championship caliber uh, team, and he's he's doing it with defense first. When Nick Saban first started winning championships, it was not about his offense. His offense came along, you know, three three yards in a cloud of dust, and then a guy by the name of Tua came in, taking nothing away from AJ McCann and those guys. But BJ and Kevin, it's like you when you when you watching when you watching Georgia and Alabama, you're watching a different brand of football. You're saying to yourself, dude, like, are you seeing this? I mean, people thought that what Georgia did against uh, Vanderbilt was because it was Vanderbilt. Well, Vanderbilt changed jerseys a week later, and nothing changed. They went from Vanderbilt to Arkansas. Nothing changed. I think what happens is sometimes, too, with everybody trying to win this stylistic way of football, Alabama and Georgia does it in a way of – they're more like substance-type teams, like – Look, man, we ain't gonna make no waves. We ain't gonna talk no trash. We ain't gonna. We just gonna go about our merry way. We gonna respect everybody we put in front of us, but we gonna make every team earn it. I say this about Alabama and Georgia's getting this. It's not that Georgia can't be beat. It's not that Georgia's saying we the most dominant team and can't be beat. We're saying, look, can you expose our weakness? And Georgia's biggest weakness is their offense. I don't know how good Georgia's offense is, but you know what? Georgia's offense don't got to be good. They just got to be steady. Don't turn the ball over. Stay, stay ahead of the chains, score points, and you're going to win. Alabama is, my, is the best team in, in football, college football, because they have the best team top to bottom. They have a good offense. That run game has come along. Bryce Young, we talking about him like he's not going to win the Heisman right now. Who, who's, in, who's, who's doing what he's doing? So I just think the BJ and Kevin, when you start talking about the way college football is supposed to be played, they're just doing it. At, they're just doing it their way. They ain't doing nothing flashy. They're not reinventing offense. They're not doing it with that Sarkeesian how he did last year. Uh, you know, with the pre-snap motions. Georgia's offense takes what you give them. If you put if you put too many guys in the box, right? They're gonna try to they, you know, they're gonna try to run it. If you don't, if you play them cover too high, you know they're gonna try to throw that thing. So, and with Alabama, we talked about oh man, forty-two to twenty-one. I mean, them boys was coming back. It was over. It was over. I mean. They bludgeon people, man. They get up by 10 points and they bludgeon you. So I don't know who the number three is, but good luck. Because guess what? If you are number three and number four, you'll get to play Georgia and Alabama. You'll get a chance to play them. So for everybody who say they're not that good, either one, you don't play them, or two, you've already got the hell beat at you and saying, man, they really wasn't that good, right? Uh, yes, they were. So, hey, I, I credit both of them. You know, it doesn't matter who you root for. If you want to watch a clinic on defense, watch Georgia. If you want to watch football being played from the opening ding from offense, defense, and special teams, so people go, that's why Nick Saban coaches his butt off until the final zero because he don't let those boys slouch at all. And if you watch Kirby Smart and how fiery he is, that's why. So I don't know who the number three is or number four is, even number five is. I know who number one and two is. And, BJ, you tell me it ain't even close. Man, please. Uh, Alabama and Georgia is at the, is at the top row. Is that they 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 at the top of the building? They ain't on the top level. They at the top of the building. People are how they get there. This 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 uh this uh building ain't even got no ain't even got no stairs. They flew in here. They got helicoptered in. That that's how they get there. And everybody can just watch them right now. They probably on a crash course right now. BJ and Kevin for the SEC championship game. But this is some beautiful football being played right now. I can appreciate teams I don't root for because I'm a college football fan first. I'm an analyst second. And from what I'm watching right now, it is scary for the competition. Yeah, and again, I said, I, I think 
finding the team that can match up that meets the talent threshold across the board for both teams, BJ, right now is it's tough to find. I'm not saying it can't be done because no team is unbeatable, but we have yet to truly see either one of these teams just have an off week. Even at Florida, Alabama struggled a little bit, found a way to to make some plays. And I'm kind of interested. We asked some folks yesterday, first true on-the-road hostile test for Georgia this week at Auburn. Neutral side against Clemson. Vanderbilt's not really a road test. And now you go to Auburn uh, where it's going to be loud and proud for the War Eagle fans there on Saturday afternoon. We'll see if there's a, a moment's hesitation there for that Georgia team if they get tested in a hostile environment. Maybe they don't. Uh, but I think we'll see. Because, again, I think Alabama and Georgia both can be beaten. By whom, I don't know yet. Uh, but I, I kind of believe that no team is unbeatable. Uh, you just got to find that right matchup uh, that, that, that comes together on a Saturday afternoon. But right now, it is those two teams and everybody else. Yeah, I think the way I, I, I would feel comfortable phrasing it would, would be something along the lines of if Alabama and Georgia play their best game, nobody else in the country can play with them. Now, that does not mean – to your point, Kevin, that Alabama can't lose, that Georgia can't lose. But I think, for example, this weekend with Auburn, I think Georgia would need to play kind of a B-minus game, and Auburn would need to play an A-plus game. And maybe a B-minus you know, means you have some turnovers. Maybe it means you have a blown coverage or two. Maybe it means a special teams play for Auburn. But if Georgia goes out and plays their A-plus football game, I don't think Auburn can beat them. And, and you're not going to get an A-plus game every single week. I mean, you see that with Alabama. You see that with the you know Clemson even during their dynasty runs. So it's not a guarantee that Alabama and Georgia are going to meet in the SEC championship game undefeated, although it sure looks that way. But I think that the way these teams are built, the balance, right, uh, the, the depth where it's not like one injury or, or you know a couple of guys need to take a few series off hurts you that much. They're just so good, so well coached. But I think it would take Alabama having a little bit of an off game or take Georgia having a little bit of an off game for them to lose one of these contests in the regular season. The only thing that's going to come down to to me is how does Georgia handle being in that spot for an extended period of time? It's not like Georgia isn't good. Alabama is used to this. Being ranked number one, number two, number three is what Alabama's used to. They they are used to being the hunted. They're also used to being the hunter. If Georgia... What's the most impressive thing about them, BJ, is the fact that they're doing it with a backup quarterback in most of these games because they know you can't move the ball on that defense. But if Georgia does find themselves in a situation where that the Georgia offense is going to have to go out there and score points because the Georgia defense is actually, you know, looking, you know, uh, halfway human, what does that mean for this Georgia team? And I see, you know, what Adam Fisher, where we want to stay number two until December. We don't, we don't have good luck traditionally ranking the top spot. I'm not gonna say that last part, but I'm just gonna. But I will say that. <laughs> hey, I, but I will say that. You know, Adam. Look, we'll we, we'll see what happens. But I don't know. We a week. I'm a week by week guy. I'm trying not to look too far down the road, BJ and Kevin, because every time I do that, I I I, I take away that how unpredictable college football is. But for but for four weeks in, my God, or well, five weeks in, these guys look about as good as they get. And I'm and I'm speaking more Georgia. This is this is usual territory, Kevin, for for Alabama. Yeah, again, we'll see how, how it plays out. Again, college football has been, has said, number of times on the show is so week to week, you got to bring it every week. And I think you've heard Kirby Smart saying that. Look, if you don't bring it this week, we don't have to worry about next week or the week after. It's a week to week test for you to stay there at, uh, at number two. And I think George has shown so far that they are up to it. We've got much more to come here on Three and Out on this Tuesday. Take three right around the corner. John Shipley from Jaguar Report will join us coming up in hour two as well here on Three and Out.
Good to have you back here on 3 and Out. Coming up next hour, John Shipley, Jaguar Report, will join us. We'll look at uh, the Jags heading into Week 5 and obviously all the Urban Meyer situation. How much credibility does he have left? We have an unnamed source talking to SI saying, hey, I don't have any credibility in the locker room. Uh, there with the, these latest antics, uh, and it kind of seems like players don't take him uh, as, as serious as you would hope uh, if you are a head coach. So we'll talk to John Shipley about that uh, coming up next hour. Also, Rich Styles of the Back Nine Boys Golf Show. But quickly, fellas, we got playoff baseball tonight. It's Red Sox Yankees, one game, loser goes home. They already hate each other. Uh, this is about as good as it gets, right? Outside of them having to play in an ALCS, uh, a one game beat me. Or you're going home for all the marbles. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and the sense of urgency, especially when you talk about this rivalry, is 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 always there. And to magnify that for two teams, Kev, that won 92 games, uh, uh, 92 games apiece in the regular season, two really good teams, star-studded, the rivalry, the history, the history in the playoffs, and now to think about this and uh, the pitching matchup. You have Garrett Cole going for the Yankees, Nathan Eovaldi going for. Boston, I know uh, tomorrow night you'll have Adam Wainwright going for the Cardinals against L.A., uh, the Dodgers. So these are these are spotlight, pressure-packed, uh, tradition-rich, historic matchups. And postseason baseball, I know we talk about the change in sort of intensity, right, in playoffs uh, for football, for, for basketball, and you understand that. But it's there for baseball, too. And the games take a little longer. Every pitch feels like it's super dramatic. Anytime there's a runner on, you know, everything becomes uh, super kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, ebb and flow where, you know, you have pitchers step off step off the mound. You have batters step off the plate. You have throws back to first. It just feels like something significant is riding on every throw and every at bat. So love this time of year. These games are are what makes baseball special when you have a, you know, a seven-game yeah. series or a one-game well, series. And- it's going to be fun. And this is what's interesting. I know as baseball traditionalists and purists kind of don't like it, but you've added to the uh, the playoffs here with the uh, the two wild card teams, and it's such it's kind of interesting if you look at it from this standpoint. I don't know if I'm like a huge fan of it, but it, you have to admit it is a it's an antithesis to everything you see about baseball during the regular season because so much of baseball is don't worry if you lost today, go win tomorrow, win series. Two out of three. It's basically like it's okay to lose one uh, every so often. Uh, the NBA, you have that a little bit, but even the best teams are like, hey, we're going to go out and try to win, you know, 60 to 70 games if possible and, and and get there. And even then in the postseason, all we have to do is if we're better than the team we're playing is be better than them three or four times out of five or three or four times out of seven, and we're going to move on. Here in the wild card rounds, baseball is like, well, we don't get them today, we'll get them tomorrow. You get to the wild card game, Yankees and Dodgers, you lose, that's it. It's one game. Mm-hmm. Baseball's not played this way. Mm-hmm. Dodgers and Cardinals tomorrow. Dodgers won 106 games. Life is a fair. Like, yeah, 106 games. <laughs> they won way more than the Brewers, way more than the Cardinals, hey. way more than the Braves. <laughs> I think they won nearly 20, almost 20 more games than the Atlanta Braves, and one game they could be done for the postseason. It, it, it is kind of unique. The wild card round, kind of the antithesis of how the entire sport is played. Listen, at the end of the day, a guy from a guy from the nine one two and Adam Wainwright could be the reason why the Dodgers are going home, and I'm loving it. And listen, I am not I am not a, a Red Sox fan or a Yankees fan, but if I was gonna be a fan 
for a day. I want them Red Sox to get the evil <laughs> empire up out of here because BJ and Kevin though. But that is But isn't this sports though? It's one thing, you know. It's one thing. Can you do it over a extended period of time? No, dude. We gotta have it today. And guess who's gonna be watching? Cause they already in. Will Smith like, look at that closing. <laughs> what is he doing? No, BJ. I mean, something we talked about before the show. You know, an odd stat. Oh, Will Smith, fourth in the majors in close. You know, uh, in saves this year. I think Kevin said Kevin wanted to see if you could uh, make a shirt for him that says Will Smith is fourth in the majors in saves. No, 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 no. But we did. I did say this yesterday, though. I know. I know Christmas is uh, steadily, you know, uh, steadily approaching. I'm always trying to figure out what jersey to get Kevin. He already know who we getting this year. If Will Smith go out there and ball out of control, Kevin, like, listen, I will wear that thing proudly if Will Smith, BJ, you know, game seven, you know, he got to get three outs. I mean, BJ, I mean, you say numbers tell half the story. If Will Smith is fourth, what story is that telling? Well, I think it shows that there are a lot of times that it's been really, really, really close. And I think that's what has Kevin and I nervous is that you've had, you know, you've kind of tested the law of averages here where you've probably gotten two-thirds of those saves or, what, three-quarters of those saves with a couple of runners on in the playoffs when the baseball, you know, the moments are a little more tense, the teams are a little better. Are you going to be able to get away with getting a save with two or three runners on, Kevin? I think that's the question with Will Smith. I, that's what has been the biggest concern of mine. Is not that he wasn't getting out of it. Is we saw that last year against the Dodgers, right? I mean, the Braves had great starting pitching, got into the late innings, and one runner on changes the complete dynamic of the stress, the intensity, the focus of every single inning. And you see it happen a lot of times. Uh, you let a runner get on, and all of a sudden, weird stuff starts happening in the postseason. And I don't know that if you're Will Smith, you're like, oh, I'll, I'll get out of it. I always have. Usually doesn't work that way uh, when, when you get into those tight situations. And that, I will agree, has me nervous for Will Smith. And I will be nervous until the final out of the season, wherever that may come, with Will Smith on the ball game, on the mound trying to close it out. Doesn't mean he can't do it. I will be extremely nervous with him out there trying to get it done, though. Well, I think the thought is, the worry is that there may not be a final out in the traditional sense with Will Smith on the mound because, you know, maybe you give up one that, you know, go. so I look, I think that this is a guy that has had his moments where he's been really good. But I think there have also been moments, as all of Twitter will tell you, where it's been, eh, you know, could go either way. So, Kevin, he's the closer. Brian Snickers said that. We'll see what happens. They're going to ride with him. Till this thing's over with one way or another. Braves don't play until Friday with the Milwaukee Brewers. Game one, game two will be on Saturday. Game three will be back in Atlanta all the way back around on Monday. So a little more spread out series in uh, in baseball postseason. But you have Yankees, Red Sox tonight. We'll have it for you. 7.30 pregame tip, uh, first pitch just after 8 o'clock this evening. We'll come back, take three around the corner. John Shipley, Jaguar Report, will join us next hour as well. It's three and out. On the Southern Pigskin Radio Network, love to hear from you on Twitter at Pigskin Radio. Good to have you. Hour two here of Three and Out. John Shipley will join us from Jaguar Report on Sports Illustrated. He will join us in about 15 minutes here. Rich Stiles will join us of the Back Nine Boys Golf Show. We'll talk a little golf with him. Jeb Blazevich, former Georgia tight end, will join us. We'll hear from him in the final hour of the program. We had some big catches against Auburn during uh, his career, and we'll talk to him about uh, the Deep South's oldest rivalry. Feels weird having it played in early October, but 
Here we are. We'll talk to Jeb about that coming up in the final hour of the program. But first, let's take three here on three and out. All right, fellas, take one. SEC did it again. They fined Kentucky $250,000 for storming the field. How lame is it for the SEC to find schools just for storming the field? Well, I mean, it's not changing anything. Uh, Look, it's not like you're going to have a group, uh, and Ben, you've talked about this before, of 10,000 people, right, at a football game who are about to rush the field, and they pause and go, no, wait, they're going to find the athletics department or the school if I do this. Let's all, you know, very uh, in a very organized manner, let's pass the message through each row and then decide collectively as a group that we're not going to – look, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in basketball. It's going to happen in football. I think the best thing you can do if you're a league or a university is try to kind of limit the danger to the best of your ability. And I think, Ben, you mentioned this in the show meeting. Don't most schools now basically lower the goalposts or bring them down mechanically or in some form or fashion so that you don't have the situation where there are thousands of people on the field and very heavy, very big goalposts, you know, come falling down with momentum. So I think you, most places, you've kind of gotten around that. But it is what it is. I mean, maybe this is the SEC just saying, look, this is all we can do. We'll put a fine out there just so we're trying. But it's not going to have any impact on the decision-making of people rushing the field, rushing the court. It's going to happen. It's part of college sports. You want it to be done in a way that's as safe as possible. But it, it seems like an inevitability in many respects. It's extremely late. Okay, so, so let me get this straight. I go to a certain school. I'm going there because, you know, obviously the tradition, but, I, you know, I'm going there for the, you know, uh, being able to have the full uh, student experience. I go to a game. I go to Kentucky. Kentucky knows they haven't beaten uh, Florida in Lexington in a long time. We finally do it. And we're supposed to say, hey, hey, hey. This, and this is the dumbest thing ever mentioned in sport. Act like you've been here before. Well, I haven't. And even if I have, I want to do it again. If you think about it, that's kind of why you're at school. I want to be able to say, remember when we rushed the field? Most people are not going to get a chance to say that. So when we rushed the field, you finding us 250K? I think it's ridiculous because, number one, you know, the NCAA, you know, they always try to come out in the wrong reason, y'all. They don't really got no power, and the little power they do have, let's let's find them. Send a check. Send a check to them right now. You can't pull down the goalposts because, yes, they already pull them down. But, yeah, Kentucky beat, Kentucky beat Florida at home. Kentucky's 5-0. They haven't been there in a long time. And now, listen, all right, guys, good job. High five. See you guys next week. No, rushing the field. And, and, and we should know who the, who the person that had to actually send. Don't just say, oh, they got fired. Who was it? Give me the specific name. In the words of Kevin, boo this man. <laughs> boo him. Boo him and boo him some more. Because I just think it takes it takes away from the pageantry of college athletics, college football. I mean, if you if you I mean I mean BJ, if you've been to Snell, uh, Junior, Josh Allen, those guys, they was a part of that nine three team that beat Florida at Florida. Now you're going to come back and say we beat them. Now we beat them at home and we're gonna no guys. I mean, we, listen guys, if we win the game this week, man, show a little class, okay? I mean, it's been a long time. Show a little class. Get out of here with that nonsense. No, I'm gonna have some fun. So. Yes, it is extremely lame, and it goes back to why the NCAA, I mean, they have zero power. Well, this is not the NCAA. This is an SEC Well, well, the SEC, Greg Sankey, I'm usually on your side. I am not on your side with this one. No, listen, let them have fun. It's a a big-time moment to just, you know, and if if I'm those students, I don't know what the money situation is in Lexington, 
But maybe all those sayings you come up with, you know, couple, you know, ten dollars here, fifteen dollars there, let them pay for it. Cause if we pay for it, we're gonna do it again. So it might be the best money Kentucky ever spent. Yeah, it really is just a money grab by the SEC, quite frankly, because they put in this rule like several years ago to try to for the safety of the players and coaches and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and they said if you rush the, the, the field or the court, it's a fine. And then it goes up from there. I think everybody in Lexington, Kentucky, once they got the, uh, the, the, the message from the SEC, said, what, BJ, to steal a quote from your favorite movie series, 250 k well worth it for all the pub we got out of storming the field, out of beating Florida, out of all the run we got, out of all the uh, the national media talking about Flor- uh, Kentucky beating Florida, out of all the SEC publications and, uh, and sites and the SEC network talking about Kentucky beating Florida and the sites and stuff. Hey, Kentucky fans actually care about football. Unbelievable. 250K, well worth it for all that free marketing that got done, and I think the next team that storms the field after they beat Alabama, because it's going to happen, you beat Alabama, they're going to do it. It'll be another, whatever the fine is, well worth it to pay to the SEC. It is dumb, Uh, and uh, again, you look at the SEC, I don't know if any other conference does it. I think Clemson comes on the field, has... uh, Fans come on the field after every game. They just—it's just something they do. So I don't know of any other conference that does this. I think for the SEC at this point, it's just a money grab or money we're giving to charity as a free donation anyway. Because if anybody beats Alabama, they probably—you could probably charge them a million dollars for storming the field, and they'd be like, "It's fine. We beat Alabama. Enrollment just went up. Uh, donations to the school just went up. Here's your mill. Go away. We enjoyed every second of it." Uh, for beating Alabama. So I don't have a problem with fans rushing the, the field. SEC, quit being lame and trying to uh, to squash that stuff. All right, take two. Can Georgia beat Auburn with Stetson Bennett as their quarterback? Well, I mean, they already have. I mean, they did last year. So I think the obvious answer is yes. But you go back to uh, the first Saturday in October last season, Georgia beat Auburn 27-6. to Stetson Bennett was the quarterback. He completed 17 of 28 passes for 240 yards and a touchdown with no turnovers. Uh, So I think the obvious answer is, of course, because it's happened already. The last time they played, it happened. And Stetson's done a great job. I mean, Ben, something you mentioned for a couple of weeks now on the show, George is really fortunate to have a backup quarterback with the experience, the talent, the ability of Stetson Bennett, because if you didn't have Stetson in a year where JT Daniels had some injury issues, uh, you'd be breaking in an inexperienced quarterback, Carson Beck, Brock Vandegrit. You'd be playing quarterbacks that are being basically debuted in these big games for a team that has championship expectations. With Stetson Bennett, you know what you have. He's a guy that can make all the throws. He has the trust of his teammates. Uh, he's had some you know, record-setting stretches. Now, obviously, going back to the UAB game, and you feel very comfortable that not only can he manage your offense and make the plays, but I think – a lot of times you feel like with him out there, you have the better quarterback than your opponent. So Stetson Bennett right now has a higher passer rating than Bo Nix. So I think if your question is, well, can Stetson Bennett and Georgia beat Auburn? Well, they already have. But I think if that's your question, you also have to ask, well, can Bo Nix and Auburn beat Georgia? Because uh, Stetson Bennett's got a better passer rating than Bo Nix. So I think, look, Bo Nix is coming off a great performance. Give him a lot of credit for what he did there at LSU. We'll see what the health situation is like with Georgia's quarterbacks on Saturday. But uh, Stetson Bennett knows he can beat Auburn because he did it just last season. <clears throat> the, answer, the answer was yes. And the reason why you know you can't beat Jay for everything you just said, but 
this ain't new to Stetson Bennett. I mean, regardless of last year, I mean, he played a lot last year. He understands what it is to play in a hostile environment. He understands what his, what his role is. The one thing about Stetson Bennett that's not talked about enough is every single player on the team is a role player. Most most guys don't like the role they, they have. Most guys don't like the role they've been given. They think they, they think they want a more expanded role. Well, who has been under more pressure in 2020 and 2021 than Stetson Bennett? A guy that wasn't on campus that came back on campus. A guy that was not even the first or second guy that they wanted. And he was the third guy and ended up being the starter. So, yes, they can win with Stetson Bennett because Stetson Bennett means I got the full nuance of the offense. Stetson Bennett's not going to be trying to uh, check out of plays when they give him a play. Stetson Bennett's not going to be trying to do too much. Now, will he throw the ball to the other team? But that just means he trusts his arm. That just means he's a guy that wants to throw the football around to these uh, receivers that he got. So, yes, can can uh, can Georgia beat off with Stetson Bennett? I would go yes. And dare I say, you might be better off with a Stetson Bennett because you not got, you don't have a guy that's that's coming in uh, already injury prone or already has uh, uh, you know an injury that he's going to have to deal with uh, for the rest of the season. So, Stetson Bennett has been very, very impressive. BJ, He's good, not great, but that's most of college football, right? You don't got to be great, but can they beat him? Yes, and the whole thing about it is the mailman will deliver once again this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I, can Georgia beat Auburn? Says, sure, I think they could beat him with him. They could beat him without him. And, and again, I think that's uh, a testament to what Georgia's defense has right now that I'm not so sure if Georgia's defense plays up to a, a level, it necessarily matters who's a quarterback uh, right now. I think that, that Georgia defense – can, can carry the mail, no pun intended for what Ben just said there for, for the University of Georgia. But as you said, BJ, they already beat him with Stetson, so sure, uh, they can win with Stetson Bennett as quarterback. All right, and finally, take three. It's National Be Nice Day. Say something nice about your co-hosts. It's National Be Nice Day. That's that not stinks. even a day. They just I made mean, that up. I, uh, well, I will say this, very serious note. Had a chance to see Ben, see you Ben speak to a couple of nonprofit groups again uh, over the weekend. Very uplifting, very inspiring, and I always appreciate the work you do helping others. Uh, Kevin, man, you have a very dynamic collection of, of collared shirts. He does. He's got the pink. He's got the salmon. He's got the blue. He's got the light blue. No, serious note. Kevin is Kevin is a passionate coach. Does a great job working with young baseball players who are trying to find out about the game, learn about the nuances of the game, does a great job working with the kids, leading with the kids. I know it's something he enjoys. Man, BJ, uh, number one, I mean, you know, uh, you know, making a, making a country boy dream come true, being able to help me, uh, you know, write a book to kind of like add to this to this quote resume that I have, people thinking that I could do anything and everything. And I always tell people, man, just look at the people I surround myself with. It's not me, man. You know, you know, as they say, man, you know, your circle of friends, you know, you know, either it's a circle or a cage. And I and I, and I appreciate you for making sure mine, uh, you know, is a circle, you know, uh, of influence. And I and I know you are always talking about your leadership, you know. So I appreciate you know everything you do and how you do. And as far as Kevin goes, listen, ladies and gentlemen, the word authenticity and originality originated with Kevin Thomas. Kevin is going to be original. Kevin is going to be authentic. Kevin is going to be himself, and I can appreciate that. In a world of people who are different every day of the week, the only thing that changes about Kevin is the color of his shirt. Kevin is going to be himself, and I love that about him because at the end of the day, you want to be around authentic people. Certain things Kevin don't like. He doesn't like double fudge because it's not, it's not real. Triple. triple no, there's fudge. no triple he chocolate. Like, <laughs> he doesn't like triple chocolate because it's not real. Listen, listen. Salads for Kevin is for, is for rabbits. He doesn't eat it. And and and, listen, listen, and the most important thing, if you bring Kevin any other type of New Balance than the ones that you can do the kickball champion with, he ain't wearing them. They got to be all white with the big end, and I need tube socks. So, 
Hey, man, love Kevin for being authentic and original, man. Love DJ, man, for just always making making me know that my creativity is something that's not just of my imagination, but it comes to the forefront. So appreciate y'all. And obviously, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, Cam, I mean, hey, man, you know. I used to be handsome at one point in my life, and every time I look at Cam, he reminds me of myself. So I'ma just, and, that, and that's my, and uh, you know, PJ with the, listen, PJ man, you know, PJ, uh, uh, the laughs that he brings to me, you know, the perspective that we give each other, and listen, uh, and man. Christian Gokel, I just gotta say, and Christian Gokel, listen, man, <laughs> I just love, listen, I love Christian because Christian go give it to you 100. Christian, like, listen, man, I am who I am, man, you know, and 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 and, 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 and Mama Trudy's uh. Uh, you know, our brownies, hey man, Chris, you know you know I appreciate it. But no, I man, I love everybody I work with, man. I, I appreciate y'all all y'all. Most people dread coming to work. I do not dread coming to work, man. I love what I do, but I love more who I get to do it with, so I appreciate y'all. I think Ben just hit everybody in the whole office. And Mark got the boy. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> he went all the way around just did everybody. And I, I do like the uh, extra rubber on the toe. It helps the uh the the exit velo of the big red rubber ball when you're when you're playing would you say kickball? We were playing kickball. Yeah, yeah, the kick, yeah, we, yeah. I mean, when they do the when they do the 2021 uh, kickball championship, they're gonna be like, yes, man." And the defending champion, the last 20 years running with Kevin, Thomas, <laughs> Kevin, like, it's all is it me or the shoes? Kevin's taking leg up. It's the shoes. 100 <laughs> percent the shoes. My athletic ability has waned tremendously, tremendously. I know BJ will say what athletic ability, but you know, back in the day, I might have been able to kick a ball here or there. So it's to me it's to say something nice. You know, this is like <laughs> I, I, I just I just it's not something I do a lot. It's just hand out random compliments to people. <laughs> my, and, and, you know, I'm saying, I, but I do. I said this. I think we had this question one last be nice day uh, out there. That you know, I said about Ben. Ben is Ben is a ride or die man. Like he, when Ben is with you, Ben is with you. I think that is a great uh, personality to have because Ben has said more than once. Like, look, I don't have to agree with you. But if we're diving, we're diving. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If, you, if, I, if I roll with you, hey, listen, listen we, can, we, can talk, we can talk about what I didn't like in the car, but in, in, the, in, the, in the presence of people, I'm diving. I'm, I mean, that's just how I'm built, and I'm diving. So if you ever make me mad, BJ, Ben's diving on you. And I'll be right behind him. <laughs> but that being said, the BJ, I've, I've said this as well. You are a very, uh, I, I said challenging last year, and you got mad, but a, a a contemplative person. You challenge people on their ideas and their thoughts and make people, you know, use their brain a little bit. That's awesome. I mean, I, I think that's a very good quality to have. We don't want a bunch of yes people hanging around us all the time. Am I right? Well, you're saying the BJ ain't a yes man? No, B, no, BJ, Has he ever been? No, B, no, B, no, B, no, BJ is a, are you asking or are you telling me? <laughs> I, I just need to know. Is, is it a, a question, question or a is statement? A question? I need to know. No, no, no. I'm, no, no, no I'm, I'm, listen, listen, BJ. When I, when, you know, when I first met you, you didn't, you didn't do that. Uh, ask me what you're telling me. But once you get to know BJ, BJ will say, what words mean? And, uh, you know, we can't just, you got to love, you got to love. So we just say, oh, sorry. So, hey, man. No, yeah. you got you to you love our dynamic. Are you asking or are you telling <laughs> I'm telling you, we have to go to break. We'll come back. John Shipley waiting in the wings. Jaguar Report. He joins us next here on 3 and Out. Good to have you along here 3 and Out on this Tuesday afternoon. Jaguars uh, being talked about for everything not on the football field last couple of days. Still looking for win uh, number one. John Shipley, Jaguar Report, joins us here on 3 and Out. John, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. How are y'all doing? Uh, doing fantastic. Obviously, the last few days have been about everything but football. Uh, what about the statement uh, from Shad Khan on Urban Meyer? And where does 
the team kind of sit even behind closed doors with, with Urban Meyer right now? Yeah, I, I think anytime you have an owner saying that his head coach has to regain, you know, trust and respect at any point, that's, you know, really a damning statement. But for it to come after just, you know, four weeks into the season and eight months on the job is staggering. And, you know, like you said, the entire reason the Jaguars are in the headlines right now has nothing to do with their play on the field. You know, they're one of two winless teams in the NFL. They're one loss away from you know, becoming one of just a handful of teams who have ever lost 20 games in a row. And while they've improved each week on the field and while their number one overall pick has improved, nobody is talking about that because the head coach has become the story and the head coach has become a distraction. And I think even Meyer would you know, admit to that as being you know, a major issue for any football team, especially one like the Jaguars. I, I, I think ultimately it's just hard uh, you know, to sell your message with some authenticity and you know, some actual credibility when you say things you know, such as accountability and owning up to things and trust and communication when you yourself are doing so many of those things opposite. So, John, what are the expectations uh, for, for Urban Meyer now moving forward? Well, I, I think the expectations are the Jaguars are going to continue to give him a chance to at least, you know, attempt to dig out of the hole he's created for himself. I think they realize that, at this, you know, there aren't many better options in-house at this point in the season to potentially replace them, and they want to see if this improving team can potentially catch sparks. So I wouldn't expect any change anytime soon, but it, it ultimately would surprise me if he is the head coach past the season at this point. I've heard some reports that you know, uh, you know, guys coming out, you know, anonymous sources, uh, guys, you know, uh, guys on the team right now saying he has no accountability with us, he has no credibility with us. I mean, he's not going to be able to win it back. Did he? I mean, John, did, did he ever even have the locker room to even try to win it back? I, I believe so. At least from conversations I had with players over the offseason, there was actual optimism about this staff heading into training camp and even in the early stages of the training camp. In large part because you know, one, one of the big things that has made Myers so successful at the college level is recruiting and his ability to sell a message where he sold a message, you know, to the players about the organization being a player first organization. And they had, they said all the right things up until, you know, football games actually start being played in the preseason and regular season. Ever since then, things have just kind of slipped. And I think starting since then, he has, you know, started to lose that little bit of credibility that he had. I, I don't, I don't think he ever had a ton of full and credibility, you know, players looking at him in awe of, you know, hey, this is Urban Meyer, a former national championship coach, because in the NFL, he's just another head coach. You know, he's just another guy until he actually does something. How long does this carry throughout the, the season, or is this something that doesn't go away until they actually win ball games? I think until you start winning, things only get worse. You know, winning cures all ailments, really, and I – really believe that until they're able to snap that streak, you know, things are really just going to go downhill from there because when you're doing these kind of things at the times that he was doing them, you know, this took place days after an emotional 24-21 loss to the Bengals with the Jaguars fought, you know, scratch and claw for 60 minutes. And this just shows, you know, a little bit of a lack of respect for that. How is the kind of totality of Urban Meyer's tenure being uh, processed at this point when you think about this situation? Obviously, uh, Chris Doyle, that hire earlier in the season. How is all of that being interpreted together as kind of a comprehensive, what, uh, half season or preseason into now a quarter of a season for Urban Meyer and the Jaguars? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the big thing with the Jaguars, you know, really has been the fact that up until, you know, the, the, these last few days, the story of their season, despite the losses, have been that they had progressively getting better since week one and progressively getting closer on the field. Whether this Sunday uh, will really show whether this has caused enough of a distraction to completely derail, you know, their development as a team and all those things, I think will be a big indication of really where the season will go from here and what it says about the Meyer regime so far. I think, you know, the Meyer regime, that there are still plenty of people who, you know, are bought into it and, and its principles, but at some point, you need to start seeing results, even if, you know, it was a team that was 1-15 last season. At some point, you need wins to help stop the bleeding. Everybody has to go through a learning curve, whether you're a player having to take the, take, take the next step, an assistant coach. And Urban Meyer has never been in this situation before when him having success everywhere he's been. What, what is going to be the learning curve for him? Not just, you know, understanding that losing is a part of learning how to win, but taking that learning curve from being a, a true uh, player's coach in, a, in, a, in an environment like this. Yeah, no, I, I think one of the biggest, you know, signs of Urban, you know, potentially being in over his head was uh, the comments that he made to Vic Fangio, you know, in week two when Fangio, and I believe there was even a video of it, where Fangio said that Meyer told him that, you know, every week in the NFL is like playing Alabama. I, I really do think that kind of shows what Meyer's mindset heading into this year was, which is that, you know, the NFL is simply getting that quarterback and getting that second first-round pick, that he'd be ready to go, based, you know, simply off coaching staff and the talent at quarterback in the nfl that's just not the case you know meyer went from playing cupcakes you know half the time out of out of the year on his schedule to now every single team you play is a challenge every single team has a great player on the other side of the ball even if it's a bad team and i really think that's something he didn't anticipate john shipley uh jaguar report joining us here on three and out and john to the field they have tennessee uh this weekend is this a chance at home for them to try to get a win here? I, I, I do believe it's a chance just based off of where Tennessee is as a team right now. You know, they had trouble stopping a Jets offense that up to week four had been averaging just barely over six points a game. You know, they had, I believe, two offensive touchdowns all season up until week four. And then against the Jets and Titans, we see the Jets are able to pull off touchdown after touchdown because of the state of the Titans' defense. And then you look at their offense. You know, Ryan Tannehill is not playing his absolute best. And they have, you know, injured guys that receive it to the point where they're playing third and even fourth stringers. So I do think there's a chance, but I also think there's an equally good of a chance that the Titans rely on Derrick Henry and the Jaguars' poor defense against play action, and they take advantage of a rookie quarterback and a team that, to this point, has been distracted and has had to focus on this instead of the Titans. When you watch Trevor Lawrence play, uh, where, where does he need to improve the most in your mind? I, I think just a standard down-to-down consistency in terms of accuracy and attacking zone coverage. I, I think so far he's been very good at testing man coverage and tight windows and knowing when to lead receivers. But I think the one thing he has to be quicker at is really pulling that trigger against zone coverage. We saw it twice against the Bengals on third down. You know, that early throw to Chenault and then another incompletion on Tavon Austin where he was just a bit slow letting go of the ball because of the type of coverage that he saw. So I think just getting more comfortable with what he's seeing, more comfortable with his decisions and his process time, I, I, I think are all things that can really help him. But to this point, I've truthfully have been immensely impressed with his ability to manage the pocket and his ability to really keep the offense in sync even in bad situations. 
And, John, how much are they underutilizing James Robinson? I understand this was a guy that was probably going to be the second-string guy when you look at a guy like Travis Etienne, who's obviously out for the season. But are they underutilizing him? And how much can he benefit from just a check down? I mean, can a Trevor Lawrence benefit from just checking down to James Robinson when, the, when uh, they first and second read just ain't there? I, I think they definitely could use James Robinson more. You know, when they actually have run the ball, they've been one of the most productive rushing attacks in the league. You know, they're way down in terms of attempts. In terms of, you know, yards per attempt, uh, DVOA, yards after contact, all of that. The Jaguars are, are among, you know, the league's best at rushing the ball. And that's partially because Robinson, especially these last two weeks, has been playing really, you know, out of his mind. He's pressing the line of scrimmage. You know, he's making guys miss. He's making yards after contact. He, he's been stellar in goal line situations. So I think when you look at him and the fact that he only got five carries in the second half of a game against the Bengals where the Jaguars are leading really the entire game, I think you can definitely make the argument that he's underutilized and the best thing for Trevor Lawrence would be for the Jaguars to lean on Robinson more. And the Jags have the Titans coming up this weekend. Of course, a win would do uh, a lot of wonders around the uh, the Jacksonville franchise. John Shipley, Jaguar Report on Sports Illustrated, joining us here on 3 and Out. John, we appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. John Shipley joining us here on the program. And again, Jags and Titans coming up this weekend. We've got much more to come. Rich Stiles joins us when we return. It's 3 and Out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you here 3 and Out on this Tuesday. Thanks for making us a part of your day each Tuesday. We talk with our next guest. He's the host of the Back Nine Boys Golf Show, which you can catch Saturday and Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. Rich Stiles joins us here on the program. Rich, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. Hope you guys are. Uh, we are doing fantastic. Did want to get, I know we had some other things to talk about. Did want to get to uh, this, so breaking within the last 20 minutes. Apparently, the PJ Tour announcing. It is happening. The match five. It's going to be Friday, November 26th. That's the Friday after Thanksgiving from the win in Las Vegas. Brooks Kepka versus Bryson DeChambeau, a 12-hole match, uh, I guess, to uh, to settle this thing once and for all with all the back and forth they've had. Your thoughts, I know not a lot of time to digest. This is just broke, but your thoughts on that? Well, first off, it's Vegas. So anything happens in Vegas and what happens in Vegas will not be spoken about again. But I think Bryson will definitely speak about it. Brooks, maybe not. But I think it's it's a made-for-TV right after Thanksgiving. Uh, you got two turkeys playing golf, and I think that they're going to be playing for some big bucks. I think that uh, Bryson will be um, on his game, not only on the uh, course, but I also feel that he'll be trying to outdrive every time, outswing brooks on every opportunity uh whether or not they talk i think will be the biggest thing they may talk in the beginning but i think as the match grows into the sixth seventh eighth ninth hole depending upon where it is you know brooks brooks may not care i mean he may be doing this uh you know just for the money uh just for the fact to shut bryson up uh so he may be more focused than we think yeah, I was going to say, on the surface, more intriguing or less intriguing than Tiger v. Phil when we've had these things? Uh, I'm, I mean, it, it doesn't excite me. Um, I think it's uh, obviously uh, put on by the PGA Tour because of, of all the publicity and all the social that has been going on over the last seven or eight months with these two. Um, part of it, I think, is uh, about the PIP money that you know they're trying to get for the most social media that the PGA Tour will not tell anybody who who gets what. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, it does not excite me at all. Um, would I watch it? Maybe. It depends on what else is on. Uh, it'd be better than the Macy's Christmas Parade, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, if I have a shopping list, I may just go to the grocery store instead. <laughs> Rich Stiles joining us here on a 3 Not a Rich. We're kind of in the off-slash-silly season of golf, and already we've seen some uh, some pretty big moves uh, in the off-season in regards to, uh, to Caddy, some pretty big players uh, saying goodbye to some guys that have been on the bag for a long, long time. Yeah, I think it's a Judge Judy type, maybe turned into divorce court or separation. Um, I was very surprised about uh, Justin Thomas, um, but not surprised that he was able to uh, get uh, Bones back from broadcasting back onto the golf course and be a caddy. I mean, uh, Bones is an incredible guy. Uh, I I thought he was doing a great job broadcasting when I talked to he and John Wood. You know, they were talking about, you know, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be, you know, on the broadcasting side. But, you know, when you get a guy like Justin Thomas, uh, how can you say no? So I think Bones is and Justin, who he's caddied for before a couple years ago, um, I think are going to do great. I think it's a great thing for Bones, great thing for Justin. I think it'll be able to keep him calm, keep him in the tournaments, and keep his mind right. Uh, the one I also was surprised about was Bubba, after 15 years, separating from his caddy. And it'll be kind of a surprise as far as who might be available that he would talk to to carry his bag. And again, Rich, for those that don't really follow that kind of drama closely on the uh, the PGA Tour, I mean, uh, Justin Thomas a good bag to get because obviously caddies are paid a, on a percentage basis of what the guy you're you know, caddying for makes a lot of times, especially if you're a full-time caddy for somebody. So to get a bag of a guy like Justin Thomas or a Bubba Watson, who you know is going to make a lot of cuts and be there week in and week out, uh, that's a that's a good gig to land, obviously. Well, I don't think Bones is hurting for money. <laughs> I mean, he was with Phil for 25 years, and then I'm sure he got paid pretty good to be with NBC. But, you know, Bones is, is, is doing it because Justin is young. Justin's got a long career ahead of him, and Justin is a darn good player. Uh, Bubba is kind of temperamental, um, and we know we've had some issues with his caddy before, uh, but I think deep down he's got a heart of gold, and um, I also think that there'll be another big announcement coming up soon as far as who Bubba might uh, might go after. Um, it may be another NBC announcer by the name of John Wood. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, as the uh, as the golf course uh, drama turns, as they say, Rich, always a pleasure uh, having you on. What do you have coming up for us this weekend? Well, interestingly enough, I've got the tournament director of the Ryder Cup coming up this weekend. Um, I asked him about merchandise. He said merchandise sales for the Ryder Cup was 40% more than what they expected. And they sold out of so much stuff. Um, so it'll be interesting to find out what it is to be a tournament director for a Ryder Cup. So I'm kind of anxious to talk to him, and uh, that'll be on Saturday morning, 8 to 9, on ESPN Coastal. There you go, and that's a, uh, that, a Ryder Cup is much more than a tournament. I mean, with the way the, uh, the gallery uh, gets after it, the fans are <laughs> certainly more raucous than a normal tournament. That is a uh, tournament to uh, – that is a special gig, obviously, to be able to get. Rich Stiles, host of the Back Nine Boys Golf Show, our guest. Rich, always a pleasure. We will talk to you next week. Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks. Appreciate it. Rich Stiles joining us here on the program. And, again, you have the Bryson – V. Brooks Showdown coming up Friday after Thanksgiving. Two guys that 
at least through social media, don't care a whole lot about uh, one another. Now going head-to-head there in the Vegas desert. We've got more to come. Three and out here on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Out on this Tuesday, Kevin, BJ, and Ben, glad you are with us. Jeb Blazevich, we'll hear from him coming up in the final hour of the program. Also look ahead uh, to the college football playoff picture. We're getting awfully close, fellas, to the halfway point of the season already. I think what most teams have five games in, have the ones who are playing this week, that'll be game six. So that's right at the halfway mark already of the college football season. Man, I just said that out loud. I'm like, it got here quick, fellas, uh, the halfway point of the season. But, uh, again, there are some surprises individually out there. BJ, you and I were talking during the break. You know, Hendon Hooker at Tennessee. Who was the guy that was going to run Tennessee's offense? We didn't know if it was going to be Hendon Hooker or someone else uh, at Tennessee. And how would that translate to actual production on the field and would it win Tennessee ballgames? Well, I think early on looked a little clunky at times. And now you're seeing it progress into uh, some nice wins, including oh, at 62 against Mizzou, who is not a team you would think is just the, the, the dregs of SEC defense out there. And they dropped 62 on them. And not only did they dropped 62, but they scored on their first seven possessions. And you had Hendon Hooker in that game go 15 of 19 for 225 and three touchdowns and rush for 80 yards and a score. And I think the whole point of that offense is to go, go, go and keep defenses off balance. And Tennessee rushed for over 400 yards in a game for the first time since 94. And to your point, Kev, about the 62 points, Tennessee scored the most points of any team in college football on Saturday. And that was in a conference road game. So, yes, Tennessee. And that's where this point in the season, Ben, to me is really interesting because you think you know what a team is, who a team is, what to expect. And then maybe there's a change at quarterback. Maybe there's a scheme change. Maybe there's a young player getting more comfortable in a system. And sometime around early October, the team changes a little bit. And I think Tennessee is the perfect example where the Tennessee we saw against Bowling Green, okay, had its moments. You know, the Tennessee we saw against Florida, overwhelmed in the second half. The Tennessee we saw against Missouri, nobody's stopping that. So I think we still are identifying kind of where we are in the progression with some teams, especially teams with new quarterbacks or new coaching staffs like Tennessee. But I think there are teams where we know what we have. Georgia check, Alabama check. Okay, you know what you're dealing with. But I think a little further down the ladder, there are teams where even here in October – we're, we're still learning about what they're capable of. Yeah, but isn't that college football more, you know, uh, you know more times than not? You want to you progress throughout the course of the season. Alabama has been Alabama for a long time, and they've built that, that credibility and that expectation throughout the course of the year. Georgia, as you mentioned, BJ, if Georgia loses against Clemson, we're talking totally different about Georgia right now, even if they, even if they run the gauntlet right now of the SEC. But finding your way is a part of any game. Finding, finding your niche is what, is what football is all about. We don't know what a lot of these teams are. How good, look, look, how good is the third best team? Well, we don't even know who the third best team is. Tennessee is progressing. They weren't expected to do much this year, starting all over. But, I mean, from, from an athletic director to a, you know, uh, to a, you know, uh, you know, to a new coach, to a new scheme, but they finding their way, you know, Hendon Hook, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Kevin was a guy who came in, thought he was going to be the guy, and obviously you're seeing what he's doing. But the SEC or football in general is about finding your way, finding your niche, and getting better at each week. But unpredictability happens every week because the analytics don't mean that your analytics was wrong. You're doing it based on what has happened and what you hope will happen. But unless it's Georgia and Alabama, anything can happen Any you know uh, when it comes to these games because nobody saw 
a team like Texas A&M getting ready to go 0-3 in SEC play when they was picked to be the team on the outside looking in to make a college football playoff run this year. Well, I think we all kind of thought it would take a while for Tennessee to get it going offensively because, B.J., you can't just be a a football team that goes from, hey, we're going to run the, uh, the read option kind of slow, methodical, go down the field to just go. Just we're going to go 100 miles an hour, and everybody said, look, that's going to be a disaster. You're going to go three and out. Defense is going to play too much. And in some instances, maybe you have. But I don't know if anybody thought Tennessee was going to be good enough to drop 62 on an SEC team in year number one either. And rush for 400 right. yards. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what I think uh, was amazing about that performance. It's, 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 it's like you said, Missouri's been pretty good at the line of scrimmage since coming over to the SEC and Tennessee absolutely dominated in the trenches. So, Hendon Hooker's been great. Uh, statistically, he's actually done some things that we really haven't seen. Um, this millennium in the SEC, only four quarterbacks have had a passer rating of 182, 10 passing touchdowns, and 200 yards rushing through the opening month of the season. Those four quarterbacks are Cam Newton, Johnny Manziel, Tim Tebow, and Hendon Hooker. So what he's doing is pretty historic in nature, but I also want to give credit to that offensive line and those running backs. We're seeing this offense been as a whole really develop, find confidence. Look, I know it's easy to overlook that 62-point game on Saturday because of what Georgia did, what Alabama did, what Auburn did. That was spectacular, what Kentucky did. I mean, Ben, that was spectacular. That was amazing, and I'll be interested to see what Tennessee can do for an encore. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and that's what you hope, right? I mean, if you are, if you are a Tennessee, that's what you hope, right, Kevin and BJ? You want to be able to make progress. And let's face it, this team was devastated by the transfer portal. Everybody that was of significance left. You don't have anybody left. So now you're dealing with the guys that really want to be a Tennessee Vol and not just tucking their tail and running and trying to go to a better situation. They want to be a part of that resurgence of it's going to take time, but I want to be a part of that resurgence. So I give Tennessee a lot of credit. We didn't expect them to do much this year. You can't judge them on what they do against teams like Florida and Georgia because they're just not there right now. But Mizzou, just like Kentucky, was vying for that third spot or maybe even that second spot. In the SEC, we look up at the end of the year, and Tennessee has won seven, eight games. I mean, I know I said that uh, you know Coach Stoops last sec- or a couple of seconds ago might be Coach of the Year. Tennessee gets bowl eligible and win two games over 500. Oh, my God, you're talking about Coach of the Year status for Coach Eiple. Uh Yeah, and again, we'll see what happens. They've still got, obviously, a lot left yes. in front of them. Uh, they, still have play, they still got to play Georgia. <laughs> yeah, they're still third Saturday in October awaiting, and then we'll find out how good that go-go-go offense uh, is against that uh, Alabama defense uh, as well. I mean, I think we kind of saw a preview of what it could be like last week with Ole Miss uh, there against Alabama. Didn't particularly go well for the uh, for the uh, the Ole Miss Rebels there uh, this past weekend. We've got more to come here on 3 and Out. Jeb Blazevich, former Georgia tight end, will join us. We'll hear uh, from him uh, talking Georgia and Auburn this weekend. College football playoff as we reach the halfway point of the season. We'll talk about teams that are still in it, some teams that are already done uh, for the college football playoff as well. We'll discuss that when we return. Hit us up on Twitter at Pigskin Radio. This is 3 and Out. And out. We'll hear from Jeb Blazevich, former Georgia tight end, talking Georgia and Auburn. We'll also take a look at uh, the college football playoff picture. How does it shape up with the halfway point coming up this weekend in college football? But before we talk about who's in, let's talk about who's already out. Stick a fork in them. Who's already done and over, uh, you know, can go ahead and forget about the college football playoff, even if they manage to rally here in the last half of the college football season. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because I've seen a couple of different 
kind of take stances on social media and articles that have said, hey, Clemson still has a small chance to get into the – I've seen it. I've seen it, Kevin. Clemson still has an outside chance of getting into the college football playoff. And I guess the argument here is, and keep in mind that Clemson does not, I repeat, does not control its own destiny in the ACC Atlantic. If NC State either wins out or only loses once the rest of the way, even if Clemson wins out, they will not go to the ACC championship game. So Clemson both needs to win out and have NC State lose twice because of the head-to-head tiebreaker to then have a chance to make the ACC championship. And I guess the outside chance that is being referred to is that happens, Clemson wins out, they get into the ACC title game and play, I don't know, Virginia Tech, Pitt, who knows. They get a win there, and they end up being what would be an 11-2 and conference champion. And while I can appreciate that theory, that's not happening even if Clemson wins out, because look at their resume right now. You lose you lose to Georgia, okay, you can deal with that. There's just about everybody in college football is going to lose to Georgia. You lost to NC State on the road. NC State is a good team, not a great team, but we also go back to the point we made in the preseason when we were hypothesizing about what a Clemson loss or two would mean. This schedule is just not good enough to absorb a loss, much less two losses, and get into the college football playoff. Now, you do have nationally ranked Wake Forest on your schedule. They're 19th. You do have Pitt on your schedule. They're getting closer to being ranked. But right now, Clemson is in the 120s in total offense. They do not have a multi-score win over an FBS opponent. Lost to Georgia 10-3, beat Georgia Tech uh, by 6 lost to NC State by six, beat Boston College by one score six. So you do not have an impressive victory, so to speak. You beat South Carolina State 49-3, to but in terms of an FBS opponent, uh, do you get it in the next couple of weeks? Syracuse, nobody cares. Florida State, nobody cares. UConn, one of the worst teams in the country. So the schedule just does not have enough opportunities to get you back into the mix. You've already lost twice. Your offense looks completely lost. You do not have the opportunity for high-profile wins. I know it's Clemson. I know it feels like when talking about the college football playoff, we have to mention them, right? They've made six in a row. It's not happening this year. And I wanted to address that because I've seen it a couple of times. The resume is just not going to be good enough. The perception, I mean, Clemson's not ranked. Clemson fell out of the top 25 for the first time since 2014. So there's not a mathematical chance. There's not a hypothetical chance. Clemson is not going to the college football playoff. Now, maybe back there next year, maybe back, you know, for the years to come. A lot of young talent coming in, but it's not happening this year. You got to stick a fork in them. They're not going to the college football playoff. No, Clemson is done because at the end of the day, I mean, it doesn't matter if they even make it to the ACC championship game. You're not getting in the college football playoff with two losses. Now, for me, I mean, uh, I, I know that even two teams that, you know, was uh, supposed to be the outside favorites in the East and the West to have a shot, and that's, that's Florida and Texas A&M. They are done. Florida has already lost two games. It doesn't matter that you lost to Alabama you've, and you, you lost to Kentucky. And Texas A&M has lost back-to-back SEC West games. And now it's probably going to be three in a row. So, for me, it's going to be Florida because at the end of the day, one loss and you still control your destiny because it's still against Alabama. Two losses, you know, again, you know now, now against Kentucky and you're done. And with Texas A&M, you know, Kevin and BJ, as you mean, I mean, Arkansas, you know, Mississippi State, I mean, you done. And I will say this. The Pac-12, they're done again. Because the thing about the thing about Oregon, what's the purpose of beating Ohio State if you can't keep that momentum going? So I think the whole Pac-12 is done because just like the ACC, there is no front runner. 
You ain't got nobody that's really, really good, and the rest of them is just scratching and clawing to see who's going to be uh, making it to another Rose Bowl this year. But for me, I go, I go Florida. I go Texas A&M. I go the whole, I go the whole Pac-12. And well, you know, I, I'm not even going to get to the Big 12 yet because I mean, as long as Oklahoma keep winning, they got a shot. But give me, the, give me Jimbo, give me Dan, and give me the whole Pac-12. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of uh, teams that we thought would have a shot, there's there's been quite a few already eliminated here at the uh, at the halfway mark. Texas A&M to me, uh, let's say they beat Alabama, I still don't know that's good enough to get them back. Uh, into the, uh, the the good graces of the playoff picture uh, at that point. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's been a number of teams who were up there. Clemson, I don't know who's saying they have a shot. They're, no shot. I mean, their schedule, as you said, BJ, is extremely weak. Uh, I, I think one we haven't talked about, and maybe they're not totally done, but I think you've at least, you, you at least got the temperature gauge in them, right? And that will be Notre Dame, right? You lost to Cincinnati. I know that's a top 10 loss, but you lost at home. Where else are you going to come up? with the big win, potentially. I, I know you play a number of ACC schools. That's not going to help your cause uh, necessarily, but as a one-loss Notre Dame, when your one loss could be to a team that potentially could be making a case that they should be ranked ahead of you in Cincinnati until they lose, is Notre Dame done right now? Probably, probably. And I think, you know, you mentioned the loss to Cincinnati. It's not only that you lost to Cincinnati, it's that, Theoretically, if you were to win out, one of the teams that you will be in debate with for consideration will be Cincinnati. And they will have the ultimate, what are you talking about card? And that's, we beat you. We beat you in your house. So I By think multiple Notre Dame, scores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think Notre Dame is looking at, you know, potentially an at-large to a New Year's Six as kind of the best case scenario right now. I don't, I don't see how you can lose that game the way you did. And keep in mind, when you get into a situation when you are evaluating playoff participants, right, you're looking at everything. You're looking at margin of victory. You're looking at eye test. And, guys, let's be honest. Notre Dame almost lost to Florida State in week one. Florida State, the following week, lost to Jacksonville State, who, oh, by the way, I believe lost 31-9 to to Kennesaw State on Saturday. So Notre Dame's season opener was not impressive. I believe Notre Dame in their second game trailed Toledo for the vast majority of that game. Now, give them credit for making plays late, but you're not going to get into the college football playoff, even if you're a team that has been there. And let's even assume they went out when your resume is, yeah, we played Cincinnati and they beat us by 14 in our house. We barely beat Florida State. We barely beat Toledo. It's just not enough. Now, I do think there is kind of an opening to the door for teams like Cincinnati, maybe a Penn State. I mean, I I know we make fun of them all the time on the show. Maybe a Michigan, if they can get hot and beat Ohio State. I think we could (laughs) see a new name or two. I do. But I think if you're, you know, keeping your fingers crossed that Clemson's going to get back in or that Notre Dame's going to be there. Kevin, you mentioned Texas A&M. Those those teams are done. There's a bunch of one-loss teams out there right now. The only thing that can really create chaos is if, a Georgia or maybe a Alabama did lose because it makes people start thinking because Alabama is the wild card because they don't need to win their division or win the SEC to be in the college football playoff. They just cannot lose more than one. <clears throat> but this is going to be a crazy year because, BJ, the one thing that people don't like is Clemson lost. They lost twice. Now, the Georgia loss is a good loss because how good Georgia is, but then you lose again. If Clemson do, if North Carolina State, you know, get bribed by Dabo and they say they did, they'd lose two, and Clemson goes to the AC Championship game, and something crazy happens because I got to see it to believe it with Cincinnati. You know, I got to see it to believe it. Are they good enough? Yes. Do they pass the eye test? Yes. 
but they passed the eye test with us. Coastal Carolina, they might be done because of schedule. Not because they're not good enough, because of schedule, they might not get in. So I'm just going to be interested to see because because there's a clear-cut number one and number two, and we really don't know who's going to be number three and number four, that's either going to come down to a Penn State that supersedes expectation or Michigan or Clemson just because they know that even with two losses, if they stuck Clemson in, they will still forgive them because they have been a usual suspect. But, but as far as like Texas A&M, as far as like a Florida, you know, May, you know, maybe even you know, maybe even Auburn because they've only lost to Penn State and they're not gonna they're not gonna win out. And the whole Pac-12, hey, I think all those teams are done. Oregon, you beat Ohio State for nothing. All that must do about nothing. Again, playoff committee got a lot of things to debate, but sometimes it works itself out. Even in a fourteen playoff, who's going to wind up there? Again, we reached the halfway point coming up this weekend. In college football, that's hard to believe uh, every time I've said that here that we're already at the midway point for a number of teams playing game number six this weekend. Of those teams that we said are done already, which BJ and Ben has been the most surprised? I mean, who are you most surprised at that we're saying is out already? Yeah, and it, it's such a long list, uh, but, but, but not to go back to the same team, but to me it is Clemson. I mean, Clemson has made six straight college football playoff appearances. They are a modern-day dynasty, and I wanted to make sure I got the latest, most up-to-date data. Clemson is 119th in the nation in total offense. Vanderbilt is 120th. So, Georgia fans, I know you've played both, and that probably has something to do with those rankings, but when you look at Vanderbilt and go, their offense is terrible, they're about the same as Clemson. And that's just crazy to think about. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to quantify it. I don't know why. I do think at some point the Tigers are going to get on track. But if I'd have told you guys, I mean, heck, if I tell you you guys this now, but certainly if I'd have told you back in the preseason, hey, Clemson's going to have the same offensive production as Vanderbilt. You would have looked <laughs> at me and either said, you're crazy, or wow, what did Vanderbilt do? They're all they're in the, one, the high one-teens. I mean, the only – Power five schools that are worse than Clemson are Vanderbilt and Colorado. That's it. The only power five offenses that are worse than Clemson are Vanderbilt and Colorado. The Clemson thing is really hard to explain. I'm going to go Texas A&M because I mean I you know I mean I drank the Kool Aid. I I, I thought it, I thought it was going to be the year when I look at you know how many years that uh, Jimbo Fisher has been in there to be able to implement his offense. I know that it was going to be hard. BJ and Kevin replacing a guy like Kellen Mond, but Jimbo Fisher got to talking, didn't he? Got to tell them what he was going to do. We want Alabama. You can't even beat Mississippi State or Arkansas. So what does that say about Jimbo Fisher, who, just like Dan Mullen, got contract extensions in the offseason? So for me, if you are a booster, them boosters, the 12th man or whatever you want at College Station, they're thinking, what are we getting our money? What are we getting for our money right now? A whole bunch, a whole bunch of uh, broken promises and uh, and and and, uh, and shoulda, coulda, woulda. So I, I'm gonna say Texas. I never thought that Florida was gonna be in the college football playoff. I just thought that they was gonna be trying to contend for the East two years in a row, and they are proven to already be uh, you know out of it five weeks into the season. But for me, I, BJ, yeah, Clemson is one, but Texas A&M because they had the offensive firepower, they had the recruiting class, just didn't show up two two Saturdays in a row, and it's about to be beat down city. Come Saturday with a Alabama team that's coming in motivated and a Jimbo Fisher cashing checks that seem to be bouncing the last three weeks. <laughs> We've got more to come. We will look at the college play- football playoff and what the picture's looking like right now. And as Ben has said, it changes week to week here with college football. When we return, we'll hear from Jeb Blazevitz, former Georgia tight end, 
We'll hear him talk about Georgia and Auburn coming up this weekend. This is 3 and Out. Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Kevin Thomas here with you. Thanks for making us a part of your day. A lot more to get to. We'll look at the college football playoff. Who's in, who's out. What does the SEC picture look like? What does the Pac-12, ACC, Big Ten picture look like here at the halfway point? We'll break that down coming up in just a little bit. But first, our own Christian Gokel had a chance to sit down with Jeb Blazevich, former Georgia tight end, talk about his days at Georgia and certainly going up against those Auburn Tigers where they will rekindle the Deep South's oldest rivalry yet again this weekend. Jeb, thanks for taking the time, man. Thanks for having me on. Always fun time. And, man, just honestly a dream scenario start for Georgia. Undefeated, number two in the country. Defense doing things we haven't seen done before uh, in terms of numbers. I know you're an offensive guy, but – to me, watching those games on Saturday, it's almost as much fun to watch the defense than it is to watch the offense. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I don't know as an offensive mind how you can scheme around the individual talent that Georgia has on defense. It, it is an absolutely scary, scary matchup. Okay, so this is an interesting perspective because you played against uh, some pretty elite defensive lines in your day, i.e. the Alabamas and the Floridas and the uh, Auburns that have put just multiple guys in the league. When you look at so if you're a tight end going to play against that front seven where they can rotate eight guys on the defensive line who are going to be a nightmare to try to block, in your mind, what would be the kind of strategy you would have to go with just to create any kind of space and any kind of time for your quarterback? Well, that's a great question. I think – I'll use Auburn as a perfect example. They've always had one of the best defensive lines traditionally in the country. Um, and when we were playing them, it was always trying to get to the edge. Let's use our speed to our advantage. Um, let's make sure we outflank them with whether it's motions or um, some sort of even true shift. Of we're starting in this formation, then everybody is shifting to another formation. Um, just trying to get them on their toes, get them moving around, and trying to create any sort of leverage where we could. It's rare that you're going to try to line up and out-physical anybody and, and put more bodies and more gaps. Um, I think they're really going to have to start to move around pre-snap and try to get creative with the leverage on the outside. And I know everybody, whenever something goes wrong uh, with the offense, they like to first blame the quarterback, well, maybe the coach and then the OC, and then the quarterback gets blamed. And then after that, it's always the offensive line's fault. But uh, you're a pass catcher as well. How many times do we watch games and we think the quarterback's not doing his job, but in reality, sometimes teams just have guys that can't get open? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, it, it goes to scheme. It goes to individual talent. It goes to even who's healthy that week. Um, there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that um, we find out after the fact, but we would never know going into the game. Um, and, yeah, to your point, coverage sacks are a real thing, and it's something that we would talk about and we would track on our defensive side. Um, sometimes you just get a blanket put on top of you as a receiver. You can't get open. You're not winning the leverage battle. Um, the, the routes that are being called aren't going to get you open. Um, it, there's a million different reasons. Um, but to your point, it's not always the quarterback finding that one person that's not even on his progression that we see on Saturdays as fans. Um, a, a lot of the work has to be done uh, by the backside receivers, by, of course, the offensive line blocking, but really – the, the main receivers need to get open because that's where his eyes are going immediately. So if you're not getting a whole lot of time on offense as a quarterback, uh, you need those first couple progressions to get open in a hurry. 
Again, we're catching up with Jay, Jeb Blazevich here on ESPN Radio. And, Jeb, uh, sticking with that defense, I don't know that they've played an elite offense yet. And they've made some good offenses look really bad, i.e. Arkansas. I mean, you saw what they did uh, to Texas A&M the week before, and then zero points in the furthest they got was Georgia's 34. But I know most Georgia fans out there, and uh, as a former Georgia player, I know you're a Georgia fan now, there's a little bit of apprehension. You want to say that this defense is great and it can carry you uh, to where the ultimate goal is at the end of the season, but I still think there are a couple of question marks, not necessarily in the play of the defense so far, just in you haven't seen them play a truly elite offense yet, and you might not until Atlanta. I think that's a great point. And uh, my championship run, uh, we won the SEC championship and the Rose Bowl championship. I think that was the same kind of feeling where – we kept playing teams, and we said, oh, they're really not that good. They're really not that good. They're really not that good. Um, and around this time, I think this will be one of those games where we start to know, oh, maybe Georgia just really is better than everybody, and it's not everybody else isn't a good team. It's just, hey, we're really the truth here on defense. Uh, I think the secondary is yet to be really tested. Um, I think there's a lot of question marks. But this is one of those games where you're going into a very hostile environment and it's going to show on Saturday. Is Georgia really all that, or have they just had a couple things go well their way? Well, and JT Daniels apparently still dealing uh, with that nagging injury and not throwing again today at practice. Looks like it could be Stetson Bennett going again for Georgia. He's a guy that's already beaten Auburn once in his career. He did it last year, that time at Sanford Stadium. But I wanted to ask you about this offense and specifically coming off the Arkansas game. B.J. Bennett always brings up Kirby Smart's record uh, when Georgia rushes for over 200 yards, and it's elite. I, I don't know that he's lost more than two games uh, or – I don't know that he's lost when Georgia's done that, but it's we see the run game, and we know Georgia wants to be a power-running football team. Do you think that was more so what Arkansas was presenting and Georgia just took advantage of that, or do you think we actually saw a culture shift this past weekend where Kirby Smart got into somebody's ear and said, listen, we got to start handing it to these backs? Yeah, I think that's, again, a great question. It could be a lot of different factors. Um, I, I definitely think J.D. being out – not that Stetson is not more than capable to be one of the best quarterbacks in the SEC. Um, I, I think part of it, too, is, hey, you're going against Sam Pittman, and nothing is a bigger statement than running on your former offensive line coach to help establish sure. that culture of physicality. Um, I, I think there's a bunch of different things that play into it, but at the end of the day, Georgia is relying heavily on the running backs. They have the receiver talent. Um, I, I think we still need to figure out how to use the wide receivers, but in terms of the tight end and some of the creative ways that we can get ball players the ball, um, I, I think you're going to have to see them continue to explore that and continue to get the passing game cranked up because running the ball all over teams is going to work, but later in the season you're going to run into some defenses that are starting to look a lot more like yours, and they're not going to let that happen. For sure. Uh, and sticking on that offensive side of the ball here with you, Jeb, uh, you play tight end at Georgia, and there's just – I don't know that many teams, maybe outside of Miami, have the track record at tight end in college football history. I mean, just in the recent past, right, uh, you've had yourself, Arthur Lynch, uh, Orson Charles, you've had the Leonard Popes, the Randy McMichaels back in the past, Ben Watson uh, just retired from the league, right? Just elite tight ends after elite tight ends. Have we ever seen two physical freaks at tight end for Georgia like we have right now with Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington? Uh, not at all. And, I mean, even though Fitz in the mix, he is a huge block and tight end. And I, I tell people all the time, I would not sniff the field if I was a Georgia today. They, <laughs> <laughs> the individual talent and how they're playing as a unit. 
is absolutely amazing to watch. Um, I'm in a big group text with a bunch of different tight ends, um, a lot of those that you just mentioned, and uh, every Saturday it gets cranked up talking about how they're using our boys out there. So it's been really, really entertaining to watch, but um, even more importantly, I think it's really helped them win a lot of these games. How backbreaking for a defense is that? I know, again, talking to Arthur Lynch here, not Arthur Lynch, sorry, Jeb Blazevich. We were just talking about all those old Georgia tight ends, man. I just, I'm just going to start calling you Randy McMichael soon. Uh, talking to Jeb Blazevich here, how backbreaking is it for a defense when you all of a sudden you have everything covered up on the outside and you're, you're clogging up the run lanes, but then you get a tight end like yourself coming over the middle and you're like, all right, I'm one on one on a linebacker. That's just, that's got to be backbreaking, heartbreaking. Just throw your clipboard down for a defensive coordinator if you have all those options on offense. Well, I think these tight ends, they're, they're becoming a lot more specialized and a lot more threatening in the passing game. Um, I think that's really the biggest matchup. You can go from, hey, we need a nickel in there to, all right, we need more of a, uh outside linebacker that we're just shoving in the mic spot to be able to take care of this guy. So you can't play with the same personnel, and you're having to guess on the strength of the offense that series based on the personnel that you have out there can't sub guys in when it's a pass versus a run um, and it's just rare to see the athleticism evolve to the linebackers the same way that it's evolved to the tight ends at least the individual talent that Georgia has I think that's something where you're going to see a lot more of these really stout linebackers that can again block it and take on blocks the way that these tight ends are blocking but also get into the pass game and their coverage it's just hard to be a big physical linebacker and be able to fly around, and that's why you see the guys that can do it, they're usually going first round. How big is it going to be when you do get a Karis Jackson and you do get a Dominic Blaylike coming back full speed? Because I know right now, Kirby Smart said it repeatedly the past couple weeks, you're rocking out with three wide receivers, 11 personnel pretty much on 90% of your plays right now, Uh, and every now and then you'll go two tight sets. But for the most part, Georgia's going with three wide receivers, and they have six healthy wide receivers right now. How big is it going to be to get a guy like Dominic Blaylock back and a Kiaris Jackson? Well, again, I think they need to continue to develop the passing game. The, the running game will get them far, and I think it'll get them to the dance. But if they were to go on and beat the Auburns in Jordan-Hare Stadium and, and win these big games, um, they're going to need to start to develop those guys, and they're going to need to start to have defenses respecting it. And right now you're just not seeing a whole lot of production. Now my hope is that, again, it's some of the injuries and it's some of the we're going to withhold – some of these things, some of the plays, and more of the creative options. Um, but I, I definitely think we need to get the ball into those um, playmakers' hands. Um, it's just going to open up the running game even more once you start to stretch the field. All right, you got Auburn coming up this weekend. Any special memories from you uh, from that rivalry series? Oh, gosh. I think the only we beat them every single time except for one. So, of course, that's the only thing that stood out is just being in Jordan Hare, having it absolutely rocking. Oh, is that, the, uh, is that the dog crap comment? Oh, yeah, yep. definitely. We, we didn't forget about that. No. <laughs> we took care of that business when it mattered most. But that is a fun stadium to play in. Um, probably one of the worst visiting locker rooms in the SEC Here in my experience. Uh, so it's it's just going to be a fight by the time they get there until the time they leave. Can can Georgia go in with the same game plan they had this past weekend uh, against Arkansas and win? Stetson Bennett at quarterback, throwing the ball 11 times, running the ball, and then just that defense? 
I, I honestly don't think so. I think they're going to have to continue to take another step, continue to develop their offense, show more of, of what they're capable of, and get the ball into all the playmakers' hands. Um, I, I think, again, when Georgia gets that in their mind and the run game is working, they're not going to be beat. Uh, but to win with a statement like they did last week, I think they're going to need to open it up a whole lot more. Jeb Blazevich joining us here on ESPN Radio, former Georgia tight end. Jeb, we really appreciate the time, man. Enjoy uh, Saturday. It's going to be an awesome game, 3.30 on CBS. No more uh, top 10 noon kicks uh, going forward. we got a bunch of 3.30 games coming up. Jeb, we appreciate the time, man. Thanks so much for having me. Good to have you here, three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Kevin, BJ, and Ben as we look at the college football playoff picture here halfway through the season as we get to a lot of teams, six games uh, coming up this weekend. A lot of folks saying, what does that playoff picture look like? I mean, BJ, Ben, unless something catastrophic uh, happens, are we looking at an SEC championship game that potentially maybe only is for seeding in the college football playoff? Is the SEC getting two? Are the ACC Pac-12 potentially getting shut out of this thing already as you look at it coming down the road? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. I think first and foremost, it really looks like we're talking about Georgia and Alabama playing in an SEC championship game that, in terms of the playoff, doesn't matter. Uh, I, I, of course, understand the value of an SEC championship and you know winning the conference title, but if Georgia and Alabama both enter the SEC championship undefeated, I don't care if it's 50 to nothing, the winner and the loser are without argument undoubtedly making the college football playoff, and there's half your field right there. Uh, I I think the ACC's done. I know some people have said – What if NC Virginia, State wins could, out? Yeah, I mean, I hear you. Could NC State win out? Could uh, Virginia Tech win out? Could Pitt win out? Could Wake Forest – I mean, Wake Forest is undefeated. But I think you talk about – I mean, Ben, we've talked about when you begin the season unranked, the climb you have to make in the perception of the voters is very significant. And even let's say Wake Forest goes undefeated. Okay. I think Wake Forest with that resume undefeated winning an AC, they should be in. But when you're comparing, let's say hypothetically, and this is impossible to predict, but the circumstances, let's say you're comparing a one loss Ohio state that has two or three wins over top 20 teams versus an undefeated Wake Forest that has zero wins over ranked teams, I think that would be a more significant conversation than a lot of people do. I I think we're moving into an era of, even more so than in years past, evaluating strength of schedule, maybe even beyond the scope of records. Like, I I think 11-1, and if you're Ohio State, your only loss is to Oregon, and you beat Michigan, you beat Penn State, you beat Wisconsin, Michigan State. I I think potentially – you would see that go the way of the Buckeyes. I don't know that, uh, but but you look at Wake Forest right now. I mean, they're five and zero, and they're number nineteen in the country. I mean, in, in in theory, if they were number nine in the country, I think it might be a different conversation. But the equity it requires to move up in the rankings, just the thought equity it requires to move up in the rankings in the mind of the voter and the viewer, it's not right. It's not fair. But I think all of us right now, when we look at Wake Forest, I'm not saying it's good, Ben. That we look at them and go, yeah, but Wake Forest is five and zero. But yeah, what what if they were in the SEC? What if they were in the Big Ten? And that's the reality that you face. And I think Cincinnati's facing that as well. Because to me, this would be the year for Cincinnati to get in. Right? Looks like the ACC's not getting in. Looks like the Pac-12's not getting in. In a perfect world, maybe you could get two SEC teams, a Big Ten team, and Cincinnati. I mean, Cincinnati. 
beat Indiana. Cincinnati blew out Notre Dame in South Bend. They're going to have a game with Central Florida soon. They're going to have a conference championship game, maybe against Memphis. That's going to be a good resume. But is that resume good enough in the minds of the voter, the minds of those in the room? I, I think that's hard to predict. It is hard to predict, BJ, but I, th- I think what happens is, too, I mean, it's still, it's still, you know, you still got some games left. I know that when you're looking at Alabama, you're looking at Georgia, you're looking at two teams that maybe nobody can really beat. If Georgia does indeed lose a game, just say Georgia loses to, to Auburn this weekend and then they got one loss, then the, AC, the SEC championship game does matter because the one thing we've never seen from the SEC team, uh, you know, that, that makes it to the college football playoffs, them have two losses. So, yes, if both Alabama and Georgia go to Alabama, I mean, go to Atlanta undefeated, both of them are in. But – this is gonna be this is gonna be a very very curious case. I mean, I with Oregon losing, you know, with Oregon beating Ohio State, and Ohio State still having one loss, they can run the table and still win the Big Ten. They're gonna find their way in. Cincinnati is gonna be that question mark this year because is it gonna really matter who they play? Notre Dame is great, UCF is great, but is it really gonna matter in the eyes of the folks? Because the thing is, you got that you got you got the college football playoff uh, committee, then you got the national perception, so you you. You got you, and this is one of those situations where you can't just have one. You got to have both. It just it's crazy, but we've gotten so used to the usual suspects being good to where it really didn't matter about the regular season. This may be the first year that the regular season does matter, and it begs the question: Do you really want to go to twelve teams now that you look at how this thing is? Uh, you know how the, how this thing is really like you know uh you know uh, ending up because. If this was the twelve team, uh, you know, uh, twelve team this year, a lot of teams that subpar would still get in because of who they play, where they play, not exactly because of their record. So I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be interested to see. The only thing that can really switch this thing up is if Alabama or Georgia did indeed lose, because if Alabama loses and Georgia's undefeated, then they got to win in the SEC championship game to get in. If Alabama lost and then I don't know Auburn end up, you know, ended up, uh, you know, winning the SEC West. Alabama still gets in because they only got one loss, and does and does Auburn have to beat Georgia? So it's it's the SEC might depend. Man, dare I say all this talk about Bo Nix? If if Auburn finds a way to, to win out the rest of the way, and Auburn beats Auburn wins the Iron Bowl, and Bo Nix in the SEC championship game, and they find a way to beat Georgia twice, oh my freaking god! So I I <laughs> I, 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 I just think it's gonna be crazy, more crazy than we give any credit for. So the, the ACC, the ACC being the way it is this year, has definitely made things a lot more interesting. But if Ohio State wins out, they're in. If Penn State stays undefeated, they're in. So, the, so the Big Ten champion is going to be in as long as they don't have more than one loss. But dare I say, Kevin and BJ, are we? Does Auburn really control everything at this point, depending on how they're playing? Because every time we count Auburn out, Auburn out, they find a way to supersede expectations. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. But the Pac-12, in my mind. They're done because all they had was Oregon. And if Ohio State can do what they do, they, they'll be fine. But is this the year for Penn State? But, BJ, if Cincinnati gets in, Coastal Carolina got to be saying to themselves, wait a minute, we might have the best, you know, uh, you know, G5 conference, you know, uh, in, in, in college, and we, can, we still can't get in regardless of, regardless of schedule. Well, I mean, I, and I think that's the rub that's going to get a lot of people there. If uh, Oklahoma wins out, obviously they're undefeated. If Penn State or Michigan wins out, they're undefeated. They're going to get in. So then the question drops to the loser of the SEC championship game. Are you really going to kick Georgia or Alabama out for a Cincinnati? Are you really going to kick Georgia or LSU or Alabama out for a potential one loss NC State if they win out? 
I, I, I think that's where you're going to find those dynamics. And certainly under those scenarios, Coastal Carolina has no shot, BJ, because their strength of schedule is 130 out of 130. I mean, it's really bad. Maybe not that bad now, but it's it was going into the season in the bottom five. Not the bottom 5%, the bottom five in terms of strength of schedule in, in 2021. So that's not going to help them out uh, at all if they run the table. So I think really you're, what you're looking at is if the Big Ten and Big 12 have undefeated champions, they're going to get in. Then the question becomes, if Cincinnati, and again, I always say this when you're talking about uh, G5 schools, let's not start counting the chickens before they hatch here. If Cincinnati, though, wins out, are you going to put them in over the loser of the SEC championship game, which, at least at this point, looks like both teams would be undefeated playing each other? A lot of football left. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Kevin, I think the more likely scenario than Cincinnati potentially getting in, let's say, over a one-loss Georgia that loses to Alabama in the SEC title game, that would not happen. Uh, the resumes for both Georgia and Alabama are are elite. They are and will be at the end of the year. I think the more likely possible conversation would be com- comparing and evaluating an undefeated resume for Oklahoma versus an undefeated resume for Cincinnati because uh, I know Texas is, is okay. Uh, Iowa State's been a major disappointment. Uh, you look at Oklahoma State, not great. I mean, I think you would have Cincinnati saying, we have a bona fide top 10 road win by two touchdowns. Who is Oklahoma's best win? And I'm not saying there wouldn't be a counter to that. I, I, I think you would have an argument, certainly for Cincinnati, but yes, for Oklahoma. But I think that would be a debate that would be had across college football. Does Oklahoma ever have a best win in a year, though, BJ, when we get to thinking about what Oklahoma does and doesn't do? They kind of in the same realm of like a Notre Dame. They let their regular season speak for itself regardless of what they do. When the Big 12 and them have been in the college football playoff as of recent, and they they got the brand equity, they got the name equity, and they got the star power in a guy you know uh, named Spencer Rattler. So they'll get in because of that. Cincinnati played Georgia about well, as good and as ben, let me add this year, real quick. But I, you know, let me add this. Because I just checked, I was wrong. Oklahoma State is a top 15 team, so I was wrong about that. If that, if Oklahoma State stays that high, I think that ends that conversation. But I think theoretically the argument would have to be for uh, uh, Cincinnati over somebody else, not the SEC championship game loser, if they're undefeated through the regular season. I'm sorry, Ben. No, no, I'm just saying. I mean, the SEC definitely holds a lot of weight. I mean, Ohio State, if they win out, they're in. If Penn State goes undefeated, they're in. But you're not gonna keep a one. You're not gonna keep an undefeated Oklahoma out with a with a Heisman Trophy finalist or a Heisman Trophy candidate in Spencer Rattler. That is not gonna. I, there are certain things I just got to see it to believe. It. Like Alabama being left out if they got one loss, even if they don't go to Atlanta. I want to see it. It, it because they're they're that's the biggest. The SEC got the biggest wild card, and that's Alabama. They've they won the SEC and and made it in. They've not even played in the SEC championship game. And still won it, and they won the national championship. Not even playing in the SEC, and that's and that's 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 pre-college football playoffs. So it's gonna be chaotic, and that's what you like. But guess what? If old Auburn can win out, Auburn will be playing potentially Georgia in the SEC championship game. And if, if Auburn makes it to the SEC championship game, BJ, and, and Georgia is undefeated, and Auburn beats Georgia, and I'm, well, they, well, uh, well, Georgia, well, Georgia wouldn't be undefeated at that point. They'd be in a loss. To Auburn, but if, if if Auburn does go to the SEC championship game and they and they beat a one-loss Georgia in the SEC championship game, I mean, do you do you still put an Alabama in even if they ain't even playing it? It's, well, it's, that's it's, an it's interesting situation, but 
I think Auburn better be ready for this weekend first. A lot, <laughs> lot of football to get to before we start breaking down uh, that scenario. But it is college football. Crazier things uh, have happened, and we'll see. Auburn does have a chance to make a statement. I think Georgia has a chance, again, uh, to make a statement. As Kirby Smart said, make a statement every week. Uh, and you don't have to worry about what the uh, the pollsters or the uh, decision makers in that college football playoff selection committee have to say about it. We've got more to come here on this Tuesday. It's 3 and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. We're 3 and out on this Tuesday. Kevin, BJ, and Ben. Uh, college football, big weekend upcoming here. Georgia, Auburn, amongst others. Also, we're about to start the MLB playoffs, which is, if you're not a baseball fan, uh, kind of MLB uh, getting kicked up a notch, but a one-game elimination tonight. Uh, BJ and Ben will have it for you at 7.30 uh, with the pregame coverage. Yankees-Red Sox, one game. The other one tells the other one to get out of here and start vacation early. I mean, that's everything you could possibly want between two franchises that do not like each other. You get one shot to ruin the other one's season. Oh, man, love the intensity. And a rivalry game, uh, these franchises – in a postseason where you, I mean, tomorrow night, the Dodgers with over 100 wins could go home if Adam Wainwright goes out and he's been fantastic this year and gives another great postseason effort. Uh, the intensity, the sense of urgency, the pressure around postseason baseball is incredible. And the Yankees and Red Sox obviously hate each other, have a storied history. Can't wait to see what happens tonight. But guys, I mean, it is a game seven in a game one because this is it. Win, you keep going, lose, you're done. Hey, great season. You played one. I mean, Kevin, I'll ask you this. You always say the play-in game in the tournament isn't the real tournament. Are these the real play? Is this a real playoff game tonight? Yeah, I mean, I I would say so. I mean, I I know it's different from the way baseball normally plays when you go to series, but, yeah, I love it. I I, I think the one-game scenario, it's tough, but, again, under the rules. I know uh, Ben said this about the Dodgers. Look, yeah, you won 106 games, but sorry. The Giants won 107 in your division. So you fall into the wild card where one game could decide your postseason fate. And uh, I think that's what we like about the playoffs. And, and, and BJ, we've seen this all the time. Uh, people will use different debates for different things. People say this about college football. Oh, well, if you go to a 12 team playoff, the best team may not win. Well, does the best team win in the NFL? Yep. Does the best team win in Major League Baseball every year? Yep. Not if you, I mean, in the playoffs, you've got to win in advance. It doesn't matter if you won 106 games and you have one game to decide your season. You got to win and move on. And if you are like the Dodgers are, a very very good team, chances are they move on against the uh, the Cardinals t- tomorrow. But I think we see that argument used all the time. Well, if you expand the playoffs, the best team may not win. No, uh, we, it's, it's called a, it's called the NCAA tournament every year, uh, and I don't want to hear that evil empire. I hope you go down tonight, Adam Wainwright. <laughs> handle your business to get rid of those uh, pesky Dodgers. So we got a couple of big elimination games next two nights. Again, seven thirty, we'll have pregame first pitch just after eight o'clock, and it's Yankees and, Do- and uh, Red Sox. So that means the game ought to be done about three o'clock in the morning uh, for just just to play nine innings uh, tonight. But we'll see who comes out and moves on into uh, into the next round of the MLB playoffs. But Yankees Dodgers tonight going to be an awful lot of fun. We'll see you tomorrow here on 3 and Out.